That to-do list you have needs one more thing. Chill. It's an easy thing to do. Just crack open an ice-cold Coors Light and chill. Take the afternoon off and binge watch anything. Go to happy hour and stay for a couple hours. Who's counting anyways? Or hang out with just your dog because you've had enough human interaction this week. Whatever you do, do it with a Coors Light. Mountain cold refreshment made to chill. 2020 Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Celebrate responsibly. Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to The Baldcast, a production of John Kanzano's Bald Face Truth. We got a fun show today. We're going to get a, uh, a bunch of guests that are in and around the flavor of Oregon and Portland as well. We got Miss Oregon, in fact, on the show today in the four o'clock hour. She will be part of the BFT Foundation Celebrity Golf Tournament tomorrow. She's going to join us today talk about uh, whether or not she can play golf. We'll find out uh, in about 24 hours. Damian Lillard, is he staying? Is he going? If he's staying, who's who's coming to Portland? We'll talk about that on today's show. Plus, we'll get a visit from John Wilner, Bay Area News Group superstar. We will uh, talk about the Pac-12, the ongoing saga of the Pac-12, and whether or not some current Pac-12 teams can matter in the playoff next season and beyond. And by matter, I mean, can they win games? Can they win games? Uh, But before all that, how about a quintessential Portland guest? You know what I'm talking about? I talked about it on yesterday's show. Do you know the song Feel It Still from Portugal the Man? A group of singers uh, that uh, speak to Portland as much as Portugal the man. John Gorley is the lead singer. He joins us now. How are you, my friend? What's happening? I do know that song. I do know it. <laughs> you got it. And too bad it wasn't a contest. We could say, John, on line six, uh, <laughs> name that tune. Um, let me ask you, like, give me, like, when, because you hear that, you know, you probably do interviews and people will play that song over and over again, or people will bring that song up. Like I've heard some artists say, you know, they have a favorite song and some say they don't like, you know, on that album, is that a song that, you know, you, you say is your go-to or do you ever get tired when you're touring of playing a song over and over? How does that work? <laughs> yeah, you can, you can definitely get tired of playing a song over and over. That song, though, you know, I grew up with 90s bands and this weird, like, fear of your, like, hit song, which weirdly, like, the 90s, like, the most competitive era in rock music, I would say. Like, every band had a smash. Every band had something, you know. It's, uh, people stopped wanting to play their hits. Mm. And as a music fan, like, I love it. I can't believe we have something like that. I mean, can you believe that we wrote a song like that, that so many people want to listen to? I, like, why why would I ever want to run from that? And I think it's really, I mean, 
personally, I feel it's a really great song. It makes me really nostalgic. I grew up in Alaska on these like long dog sled trips, dog mushing trips. My parents were dog sled mushers and we would listen to the Marblettes and the Beatles and it's got an interpolation of Mr. Postman in the song. So it makes me think of those rides every time we sing it and it's just fun. I love watching my daughter sing it. It's interesting because I've got three daughters and I will, uh, you know, they, they're they at the age where they're kind of dabbling on the piano and whatnot and I feel like this this pressure or maybe this uh, this desire to introduce them to a music teacher or get them playing an instrument. Did your parents, were they aware at the time that they were sort of forming this human being in, in young John that would go on to be a performer and a lead singer and a musician? Oh, wow, absolutely not. I, I don't think anybody, myself included, predicted that we would ever do any of this stuff. And I feel so lucky that we get to do it. I, I was a, an extremely shy kid growing up. I mean, I even at the beginning of this band, into my early 20s, I, I couldn't order food. Our bass player, Zach, would always kind of nudge the, the waitress or whoever was there and say, uh, this is what he would like, because I would just panic having to, to talk to people and I get anxiety in front of people. And now you find yourself up in front of the room. Is it different? I guess it's, does it feel different for you if you are in front of a room having to speak versus being able to perform? Or, or is it the same kind of nerves? Do you still get those nerves? Yeah, I, well, I don't really speak on stage. Um, we've kind of figured out like a, a good balance for that is we have this big screen behind us and we, we can sit down beforehand and just write funny things to put on the screen and, and let that kind of interact with people. And this comes a lot from not just me having anxiety. It's, it's something like I would go to shows and I would hear people like banter and go on and on. And first of all, I don't have that in me. And I, I think it's so amazing <laughs> what people do. Like, I'm always so impressed. I'm like, dang, dude, like, how can you talk to people like, in, like this? How are you so charismatic? And, uh, yeah, it's just it's more time to play music for me. I prefer doing that. The process of creating, you guys have a new album out. It's uh, titled Chris Black Changed My Life. First of all, I'd love to know the meaning behind that. It's uh, I'm fascinated. Yeah, so um, in 2019, our good friend Chris Black passed. He was our, like, our hype man. I guess everybody likes to call him our hype man. I never really thought of him in that way. He was just my friend Chris, who was just really fun to have on tour. And that's what being in a band is supposed to be. You're supposed to just have fun. He would come up on stage with us. And I remember the first thing we ever did with him, we played this like corporate event. And, and I asked like, Hey, can my friend Chris come and DJ that show? Chris comes up, he DJs the show. And it's just, while well, we're playing, we're in this room, it's, you know, it's a little bit stuffy at those events sometimes. And Chris is so good at lighting up the room that he picks up the mic and he just starts riffing and he's going oh my god can you believe we're all here together witnessing this this is amazing listen to that guitar and he's just trying to make us laugh and from that moment we were just like this this dude is coming on tour with us like we we have to tour together it's it's too much fun but uh he he sadly passed in 2019 and i i noticed some something that i didn't expect to happen Uh, our, our entire friend group fractured people that I didn't even hang out with Chris around and it, everybody just kind of like went their own, their separate ways. And it, it was really 
sad for me. It was really hard seeing this, like, such a great friend group not know how to exist without Chris. It's so interesting that you say that. I was talking to a friend of mine today about, you know, there, there's. I always think of people in two different ways. You're either a unifier or you're a divider. And when you get unifiers like that, like Chris Black was for you guys, like, you know, he's a glue guy. Yes, it, he really is. It, it's that glue in that circle, and it keeps everybody together. And I think I think when things shut down, it, it left me thinking a lot about those people, a lot about those people in our lives that, I mean, they bring community together. They are, they are like our moral compass in a lot of ways, too. Like, they kind of, like, show you the way. They check you when you cross a line, and they're always just making you laugh. John Gorley, our guest, lead singer, Portugal the Man, uh, their new album out, you just heard it mentioned uh, in honor of their good friend, Chris Black. Chris Black changed my life. Um, the process, when you are recording songs, writing songs, I hear songwriters in bands will say, hey, we wrote that one in an hour and recorded it. Others will be like, it takes months. Um, give me an idea of your process when you do that. And has, has there been a song where you just it just came together very naturally like that? Feel It Still is one of those songs for us. That, and it just was like for whatever reason. I, I kind of think the best songs come out of that. Like w w when you just let it happen, and it and it all just it seems like it's already formed. It, it's as if you're you're. It's it's kind of like you're misremembering a song. Hmm. You know, you're, you're you're feeling nostalgic and you're grabbing onto the next line, whatever you think that next line is. And I, I think it's like these weird glitches in in the creative mind that just let you kind of where's the next thing going to go? Like, where's this going to take me? And you just let it kind of lead the way. So Feel It So is honestly the easiest song we've ever written. Um, but there's different parts of that process. I, I personally don't really like to write much in, unless it is presenting itself. Hence, six years to put out an album. <laughs> it, you know, it's funny because I write a sports column, John, and, and I, my wife will say, you know, uh, when are you going to write? And I'll say when I'm ready to write. Like I, I know I'm, I know when I'm ready. And I, I hear a little bit of that when you talk about songwriting and that creative process. Like you can't force it if the material's not there. Totally, that's funny that you say that because that is the thing you can never have in the room with you when you're writing. Is the okay? Come on, write it, write it, write it. You never want somebody telling you to write it. I guess is why we're writers. Is we exist in this other space, and it's it's just like a different brain, you know. We we have a daughter who um, just two years ago she started having seizures, and um, just to take you down this path, uh, my daughter started having seizures a couple of years ago, and uh, we we went in, and it's it's a, it's pretty heavy, but she she is diagnosed with this neurodegenerative disease through genetic testing, like we, we learned that this is what she has. She has this ultra rare, one of six kids in the world that has her specific mutation. Um, there's things about her brain that I find so fascinating because it is so specific to her. And it makes, it makes me think about a lot of people in the world. It makes me think about when, when you know, you, you see people around that have, there's something different about them. Uh, it makes me think genetically how we're all just like these Lego pieces. It's it's so wild to, to think that we're all like wired so differently.
I'm looking right now. Francis, your daughter's name. Is she almost 12 or has she turned 12 yet? She's almost 12. Uh, she turns 12 in July. But uh, we have a GoFundMe set up for her. It's, it, you know, th- this was a scary thing. Like, so she's diagnosed with this, with this rare disease. It's a neurodegenerative disease. And it's, so it progresses and it, it just breaks you down, breaks her down as, as she grows. So we're, we're watching this happen. And it, we got the, the assessment. We said, okay, well, let's just sell everything. Let's, let's figure out a way to, to, to pay for this. And we were looking at, we, we don't even have enough. To, I mean, we, we won a Grammy, like we have so much and we still don't have enough to pay for this treatment. So our goal right now with, with Francis and with this band is to advance these sciences, advance this research to make it more affordable for families in the future. I'm looking at the GoFundMe and the goal is $5 million and it blows my mind that, you know, we're, uh, we're in a country where, you know, we we need to privately raise that kind of money. And, and I put, I, you know, I got to commend you and the band for, for making this one of your focuses. For people who are interested, uh, if you go to the website, chrisblackchangedmylife.com, you can see uh, a tab that is Francis Changed My Life. And if you click on it, there is an uh, opportunity to see Francis and videos of Francis and learn about the GoFundMe Um you know, I, I think uh, I commend you guys for what you're doing and, and for talking about it and for coming on a sports radio show for crying out loud, John, and and uh, telling your story because I think there is crossover because guess what? We're all people. Yeah, I, that's the thing. We're all in this together, and that's that's what has, Portland has shown me. Uh, we didn't have a sports team growing up in in Alaska. Um, it, it wasn't until I came down to Portland that I discovered my love of basketball and our love of the Blazers. And it was going to these games and seeing community show up. Like Portland is one of those, like it's a really bizarre place where you'll see spiked leather jackets at the Trailblazers games. <laughs> Everybody is there. There is no separation. Like we all love the Trailblazers. We love the Timbers. We love the Thorns. We're here for the Hawks, you know. It's it's a really beautiful place for that. What do you do? Because I travel around and – Look, I know what a great – I chose to live here, right? I, and I know what a great state this is, and I know what a great city Portland is. It's been hard in the last couple of years because of the images people see on TV, and I got people calling me and going, are, are you okay? It looks like Portland's on fire, you know? And I'm going, no, it, it's it's not that bad. And, and you know, you go downtown, you can still find uh, good people, good businesses. It's still a beautiful state. How can we help change that perception, John, and, and try to – maybe get the idea that Portland's a great city back while city, while the city itself sort of gets back on its feet? You know, I remember people asking me that. I, w- I went back to Alaska, and Alaskans were asking me. And I felt like looking around saying, like, yo, we are Alaska. You think I'm <laughs> scared walking down the street every day? Like, that is not what this is. It's, it's never how it appears. I mean, this is like bigger, like worldview. Like if you if you look at the world, we travel so much, and you end up in these places where people are like, they'll say, "Don't go down the street," like in Bogota, and they tell you these things, and it's, it's we're we're not even close to, to that kind of danger. Like it's it's a beautiful place. This city has been built on, again, it's community, and it's so community focused, and it's. 
I, I remember the foodie movement starting here in Portland. I remember really seeing it for the first time here. And it just being about this city is about people who just want to make good food with the most affordable ingredients they could find. They were saying, you know what, like I, I went to school for this. I want to make some really good food for people and have a really good happy hour. You know, that that's the Portland I, I know. And it still is that. Like it, it, there was just this fear mongering during that period that I think really freaked people out. You go to a Blazer game. Do people come up to you and go, do they go John or do they go Portugal the man? Or like, you know what I mean? Do, what do they say to you when they see you? I love it when I get Portugal the man. That, that's the most fun for me. Um, it it kind of depends. I, I think Blazers fans are kind of like everybody. Portland's also a, an interesting place. Like, So if I'm in Alaska or Portland, I probably get stopped the least of anywhere else that I go. And I, I think that's another great thing about it's just what this city is. It's like, yo, we see him out all the time. He's always at Sugar Pine. Like, he's always out. Like, they're always out doing things. Like, you know, everybody knows each other. So everybody's really supportive. I'm totally cool with coming up and talking and hanging out. I think it's really, really fun. And it's especially, it's very special at the Blazers games. Like, I love doing stuff like kids who want to take pictures and just the parents out there. It's it's really really fun so i love i yeah, enjoy I love, it i love having you on congratulations on the album for people interested chris black changed my life is the album portugal the man is the band john gorley is with us and uh, his daughter francis needs our help so if you go to chris black changed my life.com you can uh, link to the GoFundMe. You can see more about her condition and how you can get involved. And, uh, you know, I know you're banging the drum, so to speak, for this, John, but I know what it means to you to help, you know, raise awareness and, and help some other people down the road if if the right kind of research can be done. And so if there's anything we can do, you let us know. Thank you so much. I, I really, really appreciate it, and that's what I love about this place. Yeah, thank you. All right, John Gorley, there he goes, Portugal the Man. Their new album's out, um, and maybe that helps when you hear that song go, oh, oh hey, I know something more about uh, you know, the lead singer and, and the person behind the song. Uh, we got a great show for you today. I said we'd be all over the state of Oregon. Miss Oregon will be joining us uh, coming up at 4 o'clock. Uh, she is, uh, did an internship at NASA. I want to hear about that. I want to hear about, uh, you know, what... What it's like to be Miss Oregon. Every year we have Miss Oregon on in front of the BFT Foundation Celebrity Golf Tournament. She will be playing tomorrow. She'll be part of the field out at the Reserve Golf Course. I want to thank uh, High Caliber Millwrights and Brandon and the team there for their support of the BFT Foundation. They are the presenting sponsor of tomorrow's Celebrity Golf Tournament out at the Reserve. There'll be a live broadcast 3 to 6 p.m., so you'll be hearing it all right here on the station that you're listening to. Damian Lillard, is he on the move? Uh, the odds are jumping around like crazy, as you might expect. So are the rumors. Draymond Green in Portland, I told you yesterday, they were at El Gaucho last night having dinner. Does that mean something? Are we having to read the tea leaves? Will it be Draymond Green in a Blazers uniform, or is this just uh, Damian Lillard and Draymond catching up and uh, and uh, having a, a dinner together? Uh, we'll talk about that coming up. Plus, later in the program, can Pac-12 teams truly contend in a four-team playoff era? This is the last year of the four-team playoff, if you want to call it a playoff. 
And how about an expanded 12-team playoff? John Willard and I kicked that around coming up later in the program. we got a great show for you today. Leave it locked in. you got the BFT statewide. Damian Lillard, is he staying? Is he going? If he's staying, who's playing with him? Who's in uniform for the Blazers next season? Draymond Green, apparently in Portland yesterday. I had heard from somebody that told me that they had a reservation at El Gaucho, the steakhouse, and uh, that the restaurant had said that uh, they could not honor the reservation because Damian Lillard had bought out the restaurant and was with Draymond Green, apparently. Um, I don't. I haven't confirmed that, and I really don't feel the need to. Like, you know, it could just be, if it's true, that two friends are having dinner. Those guys are, are close, and, and they talk. Could be that he's trying to woo him to Portland. Is he wooing him? Can I say woo? Is he courting him? Can we say that in today's terminology? I'll say this. I've seen a few national media members write negatively and critically about Damian Lillard. And look, they're entitled to their opinions. I'm not I'm an opinion I'm in the opinion business. I'm not going to sit back and tell somebody that you should or should not uh be critical of an athlete who is on the fence or wishy-washy or trying to do what's in their best interest. I think um Ultimately, if you are a uh, if you are a uh, a proponent of the Blazers, if you're a Blazer fan, you have every right to want what's best for the organization. And if you are a Damian Lillard fan and also a Blazers fan, you may feel some torn allegiance. Uh, and frankly, like let's let me just step back a little bit. I I honestly think that like I was confused maybe a week or two ago as the draft approached. And I, I heard some Blazer fans kind of talking about, you know, Damian Lillard's loyalty and the fact that they wanted what was best for Lillard and also wanted what was best for the franchise. And, you know, if they had to root for him in a uh, another uniform, they would be okay with that. And But a lot of frustration from fans who had sort of lamented that the team over the last few years has just not done enough to surround him with talent and make this a, the kind of place that he could view as a forever destination. Because clearly, that's what's going on with Damian Lillard. Clearly, he's looking around going, gosh, I'd love for this to be a forever destination, but it just doesn't feel like one when I'm surrounded by players who are not ready to compete for wins in the NBA. And so I think that a lot of Blazer fans feel a kinship with Damian Lillard. You feel empathy for him because guess what? You're kind of in the same boat as a fan. Bear with me. You're not making 50 to $60 million a year. But this is your team, and you are heavily invested with your emotion and with your disposable income. Some of you more more so than others. Some have disconnected from the franchise altogether. I've talked to a lot of people. We've heard from callers on this show who will call in and say, hey, uh, I'm not really on board with this team. I can't get behind it. And I know, like, look, it gets old. It gets old covering a team that kind of spins in circles. I have to be honest with you. Like, there's, I have an exhaustion with the Blazers kind of standing in the same place, spinning around and, you know, taking a step forward and then a step back and then a step to the left and then a step to the right. And you look up three, four, five, six, twenty 20 years later, and you go, gosh, they never really went anywhere. Like, what's the point of that, right? And so I think there are a lot of fans who probably – have lived and died with Damian Lillard's heroics, 37-foot shot in Paul George's face to win a playoff series, 
getting to the Western Conference Finals, albeit you know the path was kind of laid out for the Blazers, but give them credit. They got there. And, you know, watching Lillard score 71 or 50 or 60 on a given night. And and I, as a Blazer fan, I mean, you tell me, like, have you not felt that same frustration or maybe angst that Lillard, you know, finds himself with today? And literally meeting with Joe Cronin, meeting with his agent, and then probably going off to a park to kick a soccer ball around afterwards, right? Like with his kid and going, hey, I'd love to be here. Uh, I, you know, he's, you know, I, Damian Lillard happens to live in relative proximity right next door to, to a, a family friend of ours. Okay. So I've been over to the family friend's house and even before Lillard bought the property, I went and looked at it before he bought it. And I looked at it just to be like, oh, there's five acres here. You know, what's it's for sale. It was listed. And, you know, I went and checked it out and then Lillard bought it and then put a fence up. And then begin construction on his practice facility. And it's literally a practice facility. Like, I've gone to my friend's front door, and you can look over, and you can see the gymnasium and everything that Lillard has built there. Clearly, he wants to live here. Like, this isn't a temporary, let me live here for, you know, 18 months, and then I'll sell the place, move. When you build, you know, a brand-new facility and, and something of that scope in Oregon. Because guess what used to happen back in the day when Blazer players would move into Lake Oswego or in Stafford, Five Acres, not far from where Lillard is uh, is living now. And, you know, they used to have a hard time selling the place. And the only thing they could, the only person they could sell the house to would be somebody who comes in and gets the, you know, the like they'd all be looking at Scoot Henderson today going, hey, when you get your second contract, I'm going to sell you my house. So that I don't get stuck holding the bag. Because what is it? Like Scottie Pippen took a bath on his house when he sold it. Zach Randolph took less than market value when he sold his house. C.J. McCollum went a little different. Still had a really nice house. It's one of the Street of Dreams homes. But he didn't go over the top with his house. Hassan Whiteside did. And I think he probably got stuck holding the bag. Kevin Pritchard built what looked like an Italian villa in Lake Oswego. And... Uh, and when he got out, he had to turn to Blazer players that were on the roster and go, hey, you know, Evan Turner, are you interested in renting my house? Are you interested in buying my house? It was, uh, this is what happens in real estate when Blazer players leave because there's just a very limited market for people who are interested in buying like a 5 to $10 million property in the state of Oregon. So um, I don't believe Damian Lillard intends to live anywhere else. So I think if he had his druthers, like you, you chose to live here. You continue on a daily basis to choose to live here. I think he would you know, like to see Portland uh, as a NBA franchise be good enough that he feels good going to work because he's got options. And look, I relate to that. you got to feel good enough working where you're working or go do something on your own or go do something else. Like, like I think ultimately – you have to, uh, you know, when you get to a certain age or point of your career, decide, you know, are you willing to just work for the sake of working? Because the Blazers could very well tell Damian Lillard in a meeting, hey, uh, guess what? Get to work. Uh, support your teammates. You're under contract. And it potentially could get very ugly because he knows down deep players in the NBA uh, hold the keys in most franchises and in most negotiations. The talent rules in the NBA. The Players Association is too powerful. 
But I do think there's a faction of fans out there who are looking at Lillard and who are saying, hey, he has done what we have done. He has been loyal to this franchise even when it didn't deserve it. Do you not relate to that as a Blazer fan? I bet you do. You've been loyal when the Blazers were of the jail Blazers era. You've been loyal when they traded away Rasheed Wallace and and ended up winning 21 games the following season. You were loyal when Paul Allen threw the arena into bankruptcy trying to negotiate more favorable terms. You were loyal when the Blazers drafted Greg Oden and it didn't work out. You were loyal when the Blazers pivoted from the Brandon Roy era and put it all in on LaMarcus Aldridge. And then you were loyal when Aldridge uh, left via free agency or was forced out by Neil Olshay, whatever you want to call it. And now it was the Damian Lillard era. You have been loyal through all of this and probably far more loyal than Damian Lillard has, if we're being real, because he's getting paid. He's got a super max contract. I said this yesterday, like in 2027, at the expiration of his current deal, he will have made uh, the third highest amount of money among NBA players who are active at that time. Steph Curry will be number one. Kevin Durant will be number two. Damian Lillard will be number three. Is he the third best player in the NBA? Probably not. Nowhere near it. But he has stayed in Portland, and therefore he is eligible under the uh, Players Association and the collective bargaining agreement that they negotiated for the Supermax contract. He's got the all-NBA accolades. It triggers every possible avenue for revenue that he can get. And so that, for that reason, I say you're more loyal than Damian Lillard is. You have stayed invested in a franchise that has had an abusive relationship with you and has not delivered on its promise to chase down the best players and assemble the best possible team. And there's been a lot of tomfoolery and ballyhoo, so to speak. Okay? Like Neil Olshay did what was in the best interest of Neil Olshay most of the time. Damian Lillard is doing what's in his best interest. But I think the, the difference here is a lot of you probably feel like the franchise hasn't done enough for you either and for that reason i think you do align yourself with the with the franchise's star player because i think in a lot of other markets this whole lillard thing would play differently and i think it's why some of the national media members aren't getting it like they're missing the point like you know one national columnist said that damian lillard is becoming the most annoying player in the nba right now wrote that and I'm going, what do you mean? I read the column, and I was like, ah, oh, gosh, this guy doesn't really know what Lillard's relationship is with the fan base. Like, he's still an NBA player. There's still a division between regular folks and, and professional athletes that exists in any city. Okay? And, oh, by the way, he's making a lot of money doing what he's doing. So it's not all just like, oh, he is, uh, he is doing all of this for, you know, the love of the game and because he, um, you know, he really uh, – really loves Portland and food carts and the outdoors. I don't think that's it at all. I think he likes living here. I think he loves the idea of being loyal to the soil, so to speak, team that drafted him. I think he likes the fact that he has been able to capitalize on on uh, the contract available to him because he stayed with the team that drafted him. Um, and I think he really wants to be on a team that is at least passable and and looks like it has a chance to win or win big in two to three years. 
And for that reason, I think that meeting on Monday was very important. It was not like, you know, Adrian Wojnarowski said, hey, all these meetings happen all the time. No, no, Woj. I, with all due respect, Portland's a different place, okay? And I know I've said that over and over to my friends who don't live here. I'm like, ah, eh, it's a different place here. Portland's a different place. And I think Lillard really wants to be here in his heart, and I think he wants to live here, and I think he knows that his kids are probably going to grow up here. So I think if he does leave, he wants to leave on terms that you're okay with. But I think down deep, like if the Blazers did make a move, at least in the short term between now and February, to get him one player that could stand beside him on the court where he felt good about going to work, I think it would go a long way. And I think that's kind of where we're at. Like, will Joe Cronin do that or will he not do that? We'll, uh, we'll find out. All right, coming up, Punch It Audio. I got great sound. I got a lot to say about it. Leave it right here. You got the BFT. I'm just saying, I think in a lot of cities, star athletes and the fan bases don't really relate to each other. I think it's difficult for athletes who are making $50 million a year or even $10 million or $5 million a year to relate to regular folks. But I think the Blazers organization has oddly created an atmosphere and an environment where uh, where the uh, fan base and the star player um, kind of see things eye to eye. Keep an eye on that as free agency unfolds. In the meantime, we will play Punch It Audio. We got great sound today. We interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Bald Face Truth Headquarters. Hey, we're all about truth, justice, and the American way here, okay? Which is why we've spanned the globe and pulled the top audio cuts of the day. You're going to hear little snippets of sound. Hey, it's time for Punch It Audio. Presented by First Call Heating and Cooling. Let's start with Adam Schefter. The NFL has a pending suspension of Isaiah Rogers and a handful of other players who have been busted for violating the league's gambling policy. Adam Schefter tries to make sense of it. Punch There are going to be a handful of NFL players suspended by the end of this week, including the Colts cornerback Isaiah Rogers, who's going to face a year-long suspension for his violations of the league's gambling policy. Now, there will be other players. I don't expect any big names in the bunch, but it sounds like there will be a few players who get season-long suspensions. I think there'll be another one that gets a multi-game suspension, but the league is taking a very strong stance and making it very clear that players are not allowed to bet on their own teams. They're not allowed to bet from their own training facilities. We've already seen players suspended this offseason, and we're going to see more before the week is through, multiple suspensions coming later this week. I think some of this is silly and a little bit hypocritical because you've got teams that and a league that has partnerships with gambling entities. And so what is the issue now? You can't place a wager if you're at a team facility or at the team hotel the night before a game. Uh, but if you walk across the street and you're not at the hotel, and you're on the road, like, at what point is it, you know, I need some clarity here from the NFL. And make it simple, please. This thing where if you're at the facility, not at the facility, either, you know, if you can wager, you can't wager, it should just be black and white. Make it very simple, make it easy for the rest of us to understand, and more importantly, make it easy for the players in the league to understand. A lot of talk in New York about Aaron Rodgers and his arrival with the Jets. Tim Hasselbeck sort of breaking down the Jets' schedule 
Here he is on the Dan Patrick Show. Punch you him. know, I think just because, like, when there's change, there'll be, um, like, a likelihood of, you know, some type of growing pain. And then I would also say this, Dan, that I think is is interesting. Like, the Jets, like, they haven't been the biggest game on the schedule for everybody. Like, I don't care if, like, when they play New England, like, you know it, like, it's going to be, oh, hey, the greatest coach versus Aaron Rodgers. And then when they play uh, Buffalo, it's, hey, Josh Allen, Aaron Rodgers. And then when they, like, every game on their schedule, like, the, the volume that the NFL, in terms of how big they make the game that week, is going to be significant. So, like, what is, like, just the, the emotional stamina that that football team has when they haven't gone through it, you know, with a lot of young players? to be up and kind of like be the hunted every single week because Aaron Rodgers is your quarterback and it's going to feel like the biggest game of the weekend. Yeah, I get it. But that's what veteran leadership is supposed to do for your team, you know, and uh, a lot of teams are going to have spotlights on them this season. And the Jets are one of those teams. By the way, the Jets, the Saints and the Bears have told the league that they do not to do hard knocks. The commanders, meanwhile, have said they would do it <laughs> if they were going to do it. Uh, by the way, the league's talking, looking for uh, a team that wants to do it, but the Jets probably going to end up with this assignment. I, I have to think that, you know, the Jets, by the way, you can't decline it, but the NFL will typically not force a team to submit to a hard knocks appearance if uh, the team is against it, but... I'm interested to see what Aaron Rodgers is like and what, you know, can he lead? Part of where, what he's being brought in to do with the Jets is to play quarterback. Part is he's being brought in to bring some leadership for a, for a franchise that hasn't had a lot on the field. It should be fun. We talked about Damian Lillard and some of the national media not understanding. Chris Mad Dog Russo went off. He's tired of the Lillard talk. Punches. Listen, he's a great player. Enough of Damian Lillard. Will you please? <laughs> oh, oh my God. And this is for Wendy. I don't need that report every five minutes. Of- <laughs> 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 oh my, wake me up when it's over. Miami, the next. Does he stay in Portland? What are we going to do with the trade, the draft? Let me see if they get some veterans. Oh, it drives me crazy. A lot of guys have ended up on bad teams and they're all favorites. Have you heard of Oscar Robertson? <laughs> He's playing for the Cincinnati Royals forever. We'll live if Lord has to stay in Florida. It's not the end of the world. It's the NBA's not going to cease. Gee whiz, I can't take it. <laughs> Mad Dog being Mad Dog. Love it. I think a lot of people are tired about it. But look, are they not using it for fodder as Mad Dog is using it for fodder right there? ESPN Bobby Marks uh, has a potential Lillard trade. Is it possible he could end up playing alongside Victor Wembanyama? That's what Bobby Marks is proposing. Punch it. If we get to a point where Damian Lillard does eventually ask out, would San Antonio put their feet in the deep end and go pursue Lillard? They've got all the draft assets. They've got all the cap space. They have all the young players for a player that's under contract for hmm. four more years. I mean, obviously it's an upgrade, right? But can Victor catapult them that quickly, maybe with the addition of Dame. There's still work to do. There's still yeah. work to do as far as keep on adding, but they've got so much flexibility to, that it wouldn't be, they wouldn't be kind of pigeonholed <laughs> as a six seed. There's an upside to that roster. 
Yeah, look, there's an upside there, but isn't it? Doesn't it defeat the purpose? I mean, Wembenyama is interesting, and I think a lot of players would lo- want to play alongside him. But is he going to be ready in year one to be a tentpole player on a competitive team, especially in San Antonio, where Greg Popovich is going to want to uh, take a very different approach? And I just don't know if Lillard would sign on for that. We saw some frustration from other players that have gone, veteran players that have gone to play in San Antonio. I think it takes the right mindset. I think it takes the right player. I also think the timing isn't quite right with Wembenyama and San Antonio for next season. Kind of feels like it's more of, you know, Lillard, I don't want to say babysitting, because I think Wembenyama is going to be really good, if not great. But it doesn't fit his timeline in a way that, uh, that I think he really wants. Matt Prem. 24-7 Sports was talking about uh, Troy Franklin. He believes that Troy Franklin could challenge Dylan Mitchell's single-season record for receiving yards. Remember, in 2018, Dylan Mitchell had 1,184 yards. Here's Matt Prem punching. Receiving yards. Dylan Mitchell holds it um, with 1,184, and it really felt like back in, what, 2018... Oregon really force-fed him the ball. Mm-hmm. I don't think Oregon needs to force the Troy Franklin the football to put up 1,100 yards of offense. I, I think they've got a dynamic quarterback, just like they did in 2018. I think Franklin's better than Troy, than Dylan Mitchell was. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the offense is also just better constructed to put up big stats. And with the opponents that they have to play in 2023 compared to what they played a really weak schedule in 2018. I like this one. I think the school record's in play here. School record in play. The problem I have with this is that Oregon's got a receiving crew. It's not just Troy Franklin. Anybody who saw the spring game knows that Oregon is stacked at that position in a way that they haven't been stacked in, in years. Tess Johnson there, Chris Hudson there, uh, among others. Um, I think Oregon is going to spread the ball around a little more than, you know, Justin Herbert and Dylan Mitchell did in 2018. If you remember 2018, it was a lot of tight ends, and it was Dylan Mitchell. And, you know, Justin Herbert became very reliant upon Dylan Mitchell, and justifiably so. He's a really good player. But I think Bo Nix, he's not only going to have Troy Franklin, Tess Johnson, Chris Hudson. He's got running backs that can catch the ball coming out of the backfield. He's got tight ends. Uh, I want to I ask you, Judah, on this front. As much as I like Troy Franklin, and I think he's going to be a star, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to do what Matt Preem's doing here because I think that these receivers are going to cannibalize each other with touches. Oh, I love it. it. It's true. I think it comes down to Will Stein a little bit and uh, and how pass happy is he? Because could it be a volume play in addition to mm-hmm. everything else? You know, that 2018 Mario Cristobal offense was hardly pass happy. I it's incredible to me that Dylan Mitchell in 2018 has the single season record. And frankly, I don't really know. You know how many other programs single season records only like eleven eighty four? That know. feels low to me. So in that, from that standpoint, I think it is in play. I think Franklin is that explosive. But your point is well taken, and it's one that Duck fans should be very excited about. This is a deep, talented receiving core, including the USC transfer Gary Bryant Jr. coming in a, a couple of months ago as well. This, this is going to be fun to watch. 
Dylan Mitchell caught 75 balls. I think that's the <laughs> that's the number I would look at. Does does Troy Franklin? I'll put a gun to your head here. Troy Franklin over or under 75 oh, catches? I can't do it. No, not that, not that. But I would if if it's 62, I still think he's got he's got mm. that in him because he's such a good deep threat. Yeah, big big play guy, big play guy. Um, look, I know that uh, that uh, Miss Oregon is not technically an athlete but miss oregon appeared in the sports illustrated swimsuit issue and was an intern at nasa she's also playing in tomorrow's bft foundation celebrity golf tournament she's going to be joining us coming up to talk about you know what it's like to be miss oregon i'll ask her that range that exists interning at nasa uh you know being in sports illustrated swimsuit issue uh, touring the state, going to all sorts of events. i got to be honest with you, I ran into her at the Professional Bull Riders Association event in Portland. She was out there at, like, the rodeo, hanging out and uh, and making uh, an appearance there. She was with her family, walking around with her parents. So it'll be interesting to see her on the golf course and uh, and uh, see, what, uh, see what happens. Uh, Manju Bangalore is Miss Oregon. And Manju will be coming up next on the show to talk about her reign as Miss Oregon. We'll find out a little bit about her. And like I did in uh, segment one of the show um, here, it, it is uh, the top of the 4 o'clock hour will be a lot like the top of the 3 o'clock hour, where uh, I tried to uh, take a guest, John Gorley, who is the lead singer of Portugal Demand, and uh, make it into an entertaining interview. Will I be successful? You be the judge coming up. Give it a chance. Uh, later in the show, John Wilner and I will talk about the Pac-12, the timeline for the media deal, what he expects, what I expect, and whether or not teams will win this year. I thought uh, John Gorley, the lead singer of Portugal Demand, was fantastic off the top of the show. I thought he crushed it. In fact, you know, I always will do this. Like, I reached out to uh, his representation at Atlantic Records. The uh, individual helped kind of facilitate that interview, and I said, hey, uh, nice job. Uh, he crushed it. And she came back, and maybe um, maybe that, you know, she's blowing smoke at me. I mean, Judy, you tell me. But she said, I just told him uh, that he crushed it. So... Um, do you think she's blowing smoke? You mean that she's agreeing with you? That she's agreeing with me. It was just convenient that I said he crushed it, and she said, I just told him he crushed it. No. Is that a PR thing to do? Um, It could be, but I'm actually going to say that she probably did tell him that uh, that he crushed it. Because it's a different format, and you're a different interviewer than he's probably used to, and I was very impressed. I thought it was a hard interview for me because I, I wasn't nervous or anything, but... I don't have the normal sports things to go back to, but when we, but he was really good about talking about the creative process. And I thought, like, I can relate a little bit when he was saying, like, I'm not a songwriter. Like, I have no musical ability, no musical talent whatsoever. My, my long-term piano teacher when I was, like, 12 or 13 years old, Faith Peterman. Faith Peterman had this <laughs> piano in her front room. My parents uh. sent me over to Faith's house. Faith, Faith was... Faith was old, okay? I, I, I'm not trying to be mean here. Faith Peterman was old. 
and she was my piano teacher. She was old school, and she was older. I thought she was about 70 or 80. And when you're 13 or 12, that's really old. When you're like 40 or 50, not as old, okay? So when you are, I, I thought she was old, and then one day, like she had this baby monitor that was on top of the piano, and I'd be playing like Three Blind Mice or whatever I was working on that, that week, and uh, she had this monitor that was there, and anybody who's had a baby knows you set the monitor up in the baby's room. And, and so I would hear occasionally hear things. And I one day I said, Miss Peterman, what is that thing? And she said, oh, my mom is in the back room. And while I'm giving you lessons, I'm listening to make sure she if she needs anything. And I realize now her mom must have been like 100. And she's in, but, but every once in a while, her mom would uh, make noises. And <laughs> it was really distracting to me. Like, I wish she would have just said, here, come look in the room one time so I could see that everything was okay. Because you'd hear noises that were, you know, grunts and sighs and deep exhales. And I was like, in my mind, she's on life support in the back room. But probably she was just taking a nap. I don't know. But I can tell you this. Faith Peterman, she did not see genius in my musical ability. But when, you know, John Gorley, the, uh, the lead singer for Portugal Demand, starts talking about, you know, the creative process in, you know, when being, like, the songs that are great, like, he talked about the song Feel It Still. I'm going to play a little bit of it. If you if you know this song, you know the song. It's very catchy. You probably recognize this. Or maybe you will in a second. like an anthem for like the city of Portland now that these guys are based here and this band is based in Portland and but you know the song but he was talking about how easy that song sort of came together and um, that you know the, he said the best songs happen that way they're like they're not forced and I do relate to that as far as the creative process I have no musical ability but I relate to that sentiment because I know when I sit down to write a column, like I wrote today about Casey Martin, and the golf coach at Oregon, and it was largely based off yesterday's interview that he did on this show. And you know, I, I could have written about Casey Martin days ago. I could have written about him right after the U.S. Open. I wasn't ready to write it. I didn't have the material that I needed to write it until yesterday when he did the interview on the show. And so uh, this morning, I... And I'll do this as I sit down. I have a number of columns that I can write. I could have wrote 10 or 12 different columns today. I have a bunch of things that are in the works. But you can't force it when it's not there. And I do think some writers will force the material when it's not there. I do think the same goes for a radio show. Sometimes the material is there for the interview. I had the material for Portugal Demand. Therefore, I think the interview flows better. Uh, talked about his daughter, talked about the creative process, talked about his new album and why he dedicated it to the person he dedicated it to, talked about, you know, what does he say to people when he says, you know, the band says they're from Portland. By the way, when people come up to John Gorley, do they say John Gorley or do they go Portugal the man? Like, you know, and I'm I'm fascinated by that kind of stuff. And so I think for that reason, the interview kind of flows along in a way that is enjoyable. And we will... Um, 
uh, we will try to do the same thing with Miss Oregon coming up. She's going to be joining us, so we're we're trying to get a uh, idea of what time uh, it, she's going to uh, come on the show. But in that sense, I just think sometimes the material's there, sometimes the material's not there. And and if and if you have a guest on, who you know, even if the guest isn't, I don't ask the guest to prepare for the interview. Like I'm, I don't, I didn't talk to John Gorley or communicate with him before the interview and say, "Here's what I'm going to ask you." I don't do those kinds of interviews. I just want to talk and have a free flowing conversation with somebody who's interesting. And so let's see where it goes. You know, we're sitting at a bus stop. We're next to each other on a plane. Let's see where it, where it goes. Um, you know, I uh, I just think that. As you go through life, you don't script your day. I don't think you do. Like I had a, I had a teacher in high school. He had a list every day. I look over at his desk. He had a list. He had a list of everything he was going to do in the day. And I was like, how long does that take to sit down every morning and write out what you're going to do that day, and then sort of check it off like a to-do list? Uh, going, you know, up and down that list. Like, I don't have time to do that. Like, I might have, you know, I know people who do to-do lists, and I have done to-do lists, but I'm not going to put every element of my day down on there because part of living and part of being in the world is kind of floating around and seeing what happens. And that that's what I, I'm fascinated by, you know, being alive and being in this world for the same reason that I go to sporting events and I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know if they're going to make that shot. I don't know if you know they're going to score that touchdown. I don't know what play they're calling next, and you don't either. And that's part of the beauty of it. And by the way, the coaches will even tell you that they can call the play, but they don't know how their players are going to react, and they don't for sure know how the defense is going to react. And, oh, by the way, after they call a play, um, you know, let's see what happens. And I've always, like, Jonathan Smith is interesting at Oregon State. We talked about him yesterday on the show as we were kind of talking about is it possible he's the best coach in the state of Oregon right now, regardless of sport? I would put Kelly Graves in that conversation, Oregon women's basketball coach. I would put Scott Ruick in that conversation, Oregon State uh, women's coach. I would put Dana Altman at Oregon in that conversation, Mark Wasikowski at Oregon in that conversation, Shante Leggins at University of Portland in that conversation. I have heard from Pac-12 coaches that Bruce Barnum, is very difficult to scheme against, even though at Portland State, he, you know, he plays Pac-12 schools. He doesn't have the same talent that the Pac-12 schools have, but they don't like necessarily playing against him because he does squirrely things, and he is he reacts faster in playing that chess game than a lot of coaches in the Pac-12 react uh, because he probably is MacGyvering it on a regular basis at Portland State. So I remember Mike Leach talking about Barnum scheming and game planning against him and how frustrating it is because he does things that are a little unorthodox and unpredictable. So I think there are a lot of ways to gauge who's a great coach, who's not a great coach. But um, I'll come back to this. There is a calm about coaches after they've called a play, once they're into the defense, once you know the offense is going in motion. And I've seen this firsthand with Jonathan Smith in particular at Oregon State. There was a calm that comes over him in that moment. He has a real peace about him on the sideline. I don't know if you've seen him on the sideline. He looks like he's just watching the football game in between calling the plays. And I was on the sideline at, in the third quarter. Uh, was it last season or the season before? I can't remember. I think it might have been last season. 
uh, Oregon State was playing Stanford at home. So it was two seasons ago. I was on the sideline at Oregon State in the third quarter. And Jonathan Smith saw me on the sideline during the game. And he walked over to me during the game. And we had a conversation during the game. And I kind of was looking at him like, don't you need to be like focused on what's happening on the field? And he was kind of watching it. But I got the uh, the sense that he was almost like a coach who was saying, hey, I've done everything I can possibly do. I've prepared my guys. It's out of my hands. We're calling the play. And that was kind of the mindset he had. It was really interesting. you know. And they may have been on the defensive side of the ball when he was walking over to me. But, you know, he was just uh, – he was just kind of taking a walk in the park, so to speak, during the game. And I thought, wow, that's really interesting. Now, you know, we had had the uh, lead singer for Portugal the Man on in hour, hour one. I kind of wondered in, you know, and I kind of thought it was interesting. I don't know if you thought it was interesting, Judah, when he said he was he was shy, that he, he even in even in kind of ordering in a restaurant, he was shy uh, to an extent of he's not going to uh, – now, you know, he wasn't going to speak up and order in a restaurant. I thought that was really interesting because here's a guy who's on stage at a musical venue performing in front of people. That's not a shy act. And yet he's saying, you know, conversationally or speaking to groups of people, he's almost nervous and gets stage fright a little bit. I was fascinated by that part of the interview. What did you like about that interview? I didn't really know what to expect, and I always kind of like that uh, feeling of uh, unexpectedness because it's different. Yeah. One, it's right off the top of the show. Two, it's a it's a musical artist. I know you've done a number of those, but it, it's been a little while. Squirrely. They're squirrely, those artists. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but John was phenomenal, and um, he has a lot of depth to him, and a lot of he derives a lot of meaning, uh, not only from his music, but in his life. And you were able to draw that out of him. You were um, you were responsive to some kind of cues he gave you along the way, especially talking about his daughter. I appreciated that. And and then when he ties it all back to his Portland sports fandom, you know that that's meaningful as well. You know there was a stretch there. I don't know if they still do it at Moda Center, but they use one of their songs in their team introductions. Um, at least they did a couple seasons ago, which which is always fun and. He just seems like someone that's that's a man of the people when he's not on stage, and then when he's on when he is on stage, he's about the music, baby. And let's let's play some music, let's make some art the way that uh, musicians do. So I thoroughly enjoyed it. He was a lot of fun. Yeah, I had fun with it. I, I, the unpredictability is interesting because there are there are I've met people even in this business who who don't like unpredictability, and I and I've said it. TV people seem to have a harder time with it. Because those TV ins and outs, the commercial breaks, everything is timed to the second, and and the shows are out, they're scripted. And nowadays, when you go into a uh, a TV studio, whether it be uh, Coin or KGW or K2 or or Fox 12, KPTV, um, the cameras are all operated remotely, and they're all preset. So the cameras will move uh, based on the script, and so there isn't a lot of freelancing going on. Maybe outside the weather report. Aside from the temperatures that are given, there's not a lot of like freelancing that is going on. And so I always made like I think I made the the Sports Sunday people a little bit uncomfortable at KGW, at least initially, because I came in and I was like, you know, I'm much more on this show comfortable with 
just saying, okay, you all right, I got 18 minutes or 20 minutes or 12 minutes or 60 seconds, whatever the time being, I'll fill that time. I'll have something to say. And, and um, you know, I've got an abundance of things to talk about. And I found people that are uncomfortable not knowing where it's going. But I didn't know where it was going either off the top of the show. It could have been a disaster. But it was my job to make sure it wasn't as much of a disaster as it could be. And I was fascinated by the guy. In fact, him mushing growing up in Alaska? Come on. Uh, Michael and Eugene is called in. He's listening on Fox Sports Eugene. He wants to talk about the best coach in the state. Michael, who is the best coach in the state of Oregon? John, you and Judah are the best sports talk in the state of Oregon. So kudos, Thank you. Kissing up never hurts. Go ahead. What else? I know. And Anna is a delight. The five at five is you. You, uh... You've overachieved, sir. My hat's Thank off you. to you. You're, you know what? You know, what? You know who said the same? I'm going to tell you something. I had coffee today with Kelly Graves, the Oregon women's basketball coach. He said to me his favorite part of the show is the 5 at 5 when Anna comes on. And I go, well, why don't we just extend that for three hours? But Anna would not go for that. But go ahead. Who's the best coach in the state? Well, Kelly's a smart guy, and he's in the running. But it has to be – there are two things. If you're looking at Pac-12 futures – then you can talk about Jonathan Smith and Lanning. And uh, I guess for the moment, you can talk about USC's guys. But the truth is none of those folks have won anything yet, not even conference titles. Uh, Whittingham is the only one that has. So in the state of Oregon, it still has to be Dana or Kelly or uh, I guess now Mark W. with Oregon Baseball because they're the only ones that have won anything. That matters. Pac-12 futures, though, I think, as much as I hate it, uh, Smith is very good, and I think Lanning, you know, he cannot lose to the Beavers of UW again this year. Those are the only two games you can't lose, especially two years in a row. He will turn into John Cooper so fast. No one will care about the recruiting rankings. You cannot lose to the Dogs and the Beavers two years in a row, ever. So yeah. he has to win one or both of those games, preferably both. But it's got to be Kelly or Dana, and I'll let you guys chat. Yeah. Thanks, John. I, well, I think Dana Altman, look, I, on one hand, Dana Altman and Kelly Graves have both been to a Final Four. Um, and I think Oregon would have won a national championship in the pandemic year where the, where the conference uh, or the NCAA tournament got canceled. How different would this conversation be, Judah, if Kelly Graves had a national title the only national title among basketball or football coaches in this state. I think he'd be at the top, no question. That's how much it, it means, and I think we'll think of, uh, you know, the spring of 2020 in those terms, unfortunately. But it is interesting, right? All these coaches face different challenges, and I will be honest. I kind of see coaching, especially when you're comparing cross sports, in terms of how good are you with your tactics, which is one yeah. of the points you brought up with Bobby Knight yesterday, and then, too, how are you good, you know, with your motivation, with your philosophy? You know, I'm a Seahawks fan, so I've I got a lot of Pete Carroll floating around in my head on a day-to-day basis, for better or for worse. For sure, yeah. But philosophy matters a ton, you're, you're, and your mindset matters a ton. So sometimes I can kind of rely on that a little too much. You know, there's a lot of guys that are great motivators that lose games that they should win. Like Pete Carroll, for instance. But 
And are then, you talking specifically about the Super Bowl? Do you, is it just that one game, or are there other instances where you go, come on, Pete? Oh, plenty. Yeah, plenty of others. Uh, especially, you know, it's a micro sense, but he is one of the worst challengers of all time in, in the NFL. He does not know when to throw a challenge flag at the right time, and he always throws it at the wrong time. Yeah, he, he needs the right people around him. And that guy's like almost 80. You know, he's not quite 80, but if that if a guy with that much experience, you know, in college football and the NFL still needs the right people around him in order to make good decisions mm-hmm. and uphold good culture, that every coach needs that. And yeah. look, I look at Scott Ruick, I've got so much respect for Scott Ruick and what he has built at Oregon State, partly because I watched some of the George Fox games when he was there and appreciate his background and everything. But the it's so hard to to see how these coaches navigate the NIL waters. That is such a major you know moment in yeah, their sports. It's, it's history. a game changer. It's, it's kind of changed made, the it's changed the calculus. It's made it a different sport in so many ways. And I know you know that you just hours ago were talking to Kelly. I'm sure about that. Like what what were his thoughts on that? What were some things that that you can share about his perspective on well, how I all don't want to speak for him, yeah. but I do think I've talked to a number of coaches who are you know, age 35 to 65, who are all saying the same thing. They're all, tr- you know, we've seen a number of coaches who have who have left college sports because they say that this is not fun anymore. I don't like what it's become. Uh, we've seen others who have pivoted very well and deftly. So I think what it has caused, I don't want to say it's a midlife crisis, but I think it has caused the entire industry to sort of step back and go, okay, wait a minute. Um, is this the same job that I was doing five years ago or can, you know, do I, do I want to do this anymore? Like, you know, certainly Kelly's not in that position. He's trying to build a winner at Oregon and, and will continue. But I think there are a lot of coaches who are doing that. Chris Peterson and David Shaw leaving the PAC 12 in football. Mm -hmm. Um, I just think there are some going, Hey, it's not, this isn't the job I had before. And here's the other thing. These coaches are making money. And so they're not in a position where they need it. You know, like several of them have worked to the point where they don't need to work anymore. Like they're just, hey, if it's not any fun, I'm not going to do it. So I think it's a great conversation. And Michael and Eugene's right. Like, look, the football coaches at Oregon and Oregon State, they got 10 win seasons last year. But this is going to be an important year. It's going to be an important year for Dan Lanning to not lose games he shouldn't lose. And for Jonathan Smith to prove that last year – was a building block, not a desk BFT. Stay well. Anna has popped into the studio. Uh, Anna, it looks like Miss Oregon will be on tomorrow's show. She had a family emergency. She uh, communicated this to you. Anything else that we know? she okay? Uh, Yeah. I mean, it sounds like they're dealing with something pretty serious, and it happened right before she was about to come on the show. So, uh, obviously, we understand family first. Okay. So, tomorrow... She will come on the show, and Judah Newby and Stephen will interview her. Yeah. And their first question will be, is everything okay? <laughs> yes. She's interesting because she is Miss Oregon. Yeah. She's a NASA uh, intern. Mm-hmm. She's in the Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue. Yes. And uh, she was at the rodeo. We saw her at the rodeo with her parents. Yes. 
So yeah, she's got a lot to talk about. She does have a lot to talk about. Would it be weird for me to at, to lead with the swimsuit issue? I don't think so. Thing I think she's proud of it. I think she made history actually she with did? that swimsuit um, appearance. Well, from what I, I, I remember, to, now I now I'm interested. How did she make history with the swimsuit uh, appearance? Because I remember back in the day when, look, even if we had female athletes on the show, that like. Um, one time I had Anna Kornikova on this show, the tennis player. Yeah. And, um, you know, she was okay as a tennis player, but she made kind of her her deal was that if Instagram had been a thing at the at the onset of Anna Kornikova's, um, you know, rise in the sport, right? she would have been Instagram famous more so than tennis famous very much yeah she was making it with endorsements and branding and whatnot but it was kind of a weird line for me to be walking because on one hand i didn't want to be like asking the you know the 121st ranked player in the world about you know how great she is at tennis when you know by by regular standards yes she's a pro she's great yes but by professional standards she was very mediocre and it was all about you know you're a spokesperson how do you deal with this and I remember the interview kind of went into, um, we ended up talking about who she was dating or how hard it is for her to date. Right. And, and I was like, that's a very different interview than what I'm used to doing. So are you telling me that Miss Oregon, it's all right to talk about the swimsuit issue and lead with that? Yeah. Well, I, or I don't know. Or should I back you... into it? Um, well, I mean, I think she's pretty public about how proud she is that she was in that swimsuit um, edition. I'm trying to remember. I think it has something to do with her being of Indian descent. Okay. And it was a first of some kind. I don't know. Maybe not lead with that, though. You know, maybe Kinda lead weird. with... Uh, that would be weird. Awkward. Yeah. I mean... I, I didn't do it. Like, I had another athlete who had posed pretty much nude in a magazine. Yeah. Gary Player, the golfer. Yeah. He's in his 70s. Gary Player. I yeah. love those people that their their last names actually match kind of yeah. what they do. I don't, yeah. Personal. His name should geekiness. have been. It, it's almost his name is almost golf player, <laughs> which is what Gary Player does. Right. If you think about it, you know. Um. So, but it, Gary Player came on the show. He's in his like he's like seventy eight. Yeah. He had posed in the ESPN The Body magazine at seventy eight, and it was that magazine <laughs> issue where ESPN got a little bit racy with it. Yeah. I mean, nude, 78-year-old dude with only a golf club to to hide what else was there. That was it? I felt like I was in the locker room at 24-Hour Fitness, like just walking <laughs> through trying not to look at anything, you know? But he was really proud of it, you know? And eventually we had to talk about it. Yes. Like We had to get to the point where, like, it was why he was on the show. <laughs> I mean, he was on the show to essentially to talk about the fact that he was in the body, you know, episode and so uh that's the he must have been one of the first because you know didn't it like that kind of set off a whole trend of the body kind of series i like, think espn magazine tried to outdo the sports illustrated swimsuit issue in yeah that, that's the, right in that it tried to put athletes right in the in the pictures do you think it worked it shamed sports illustrated into putting better athletes in the swimsuit issue because oh. uh, you might remember like Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue when I was like a young teenager yes. waiting by my mailbox in February <laughs> uh, was Kathy Ireland, Paulina Poritzkova, not that I was that tuned into it, 
Um, <laughs> Those but, names just rolling off the tongue. Well, I just remember when I was a sophomore in high school, one of my friends in school started the Kathy Ireland fan club. Because <laughs> yeah. there was a chess club, uh-huh. and there was like every other club that you could have on campus. Why not, right? And he went, how come we don't have a Kathy Ireland fan mm-hmm. club? Mm-hmm. And they Makes said, sense. well, you have to follow these things to get certified you needed an advisor yeah you need it so he got an advisor to sign off on it he made membership cards <laughs> like if kathy ireland only knew what um were you in the club i was in the club yeah what did you do at club gatherings we had only one meeting okay one meeting <laughs> the biggest thing was having a membership card i see <laughs> the membership card had kathy ireland's face on it right and it said kathy ireland <laughs> fan club member number one member number two <laughs> So if Kathy Ireland ever found out, man, she'd have been so happy. I'm trying to think of what the equivalent for me would have been. It would have been like the Kirk Cameron fan club. Well, didn't you have those magazines like Bop, Teen Beat, Tiger Beat? Yeah, Tiger Beat and like Bop or Teen Bop or something like that. Yeah, and it was like Joey Lawrence. Yeah, they had the uh, full page poster, so you'd you'd flip through the magazine looking for okay, what what is the poster going to be this year, and or this edition, and you'd rip it out carefully because it was always kind of stapled in, and then you'd unfold it, and voila, Christian Slater's on your wall. Wow. It's exciting. <laughs> Not my wall, but but my point was Sports Illustrated at, was only doing models. Yeah. And then it was doing swimsuit models. And then when the body, when ESPN The Body magazine came out, mm-hmm. Sports Illustrated went, oh, wait a minute. They're, because they were like, ESPN was putting like Serena Williams, mm-hmm. Gary Player, yeah. you know, uh, car, auto, motorsports people. Mm-hmm. They were. They were saying, here's the athlete body, let's celebrate it. Mm-hmm. So everything that Sports Illustrated was getting criticized for, mm. oh, you're exploiting women, you're just, you know, this is all about, you know, just looking at women in bikinis. The ESPN magazine was going, you know what, we're going to be about celebrating the athlete's body. And we're going to show, like, 78-year-old Gary Player whatnot. So Sports Illustrated, after that, pivoted a little bit mm-hmm. and started working in some athletes. Mm-hmm. You know? Makes sense. That wasn't a bad strategy by ESPN. But, you know, last time I checked, most women don't take, like, naked or nearly naked pictures of men and put them up on their walls, you know, and stare at them. Didn't we have a derivative of this conversation once upon a time? Probably. With you and Alabama Adriana. Mm, it was yeah. It was right about the time when some famous politician had sent <laughs> a photograph of uh, the family jewels in, yes. uh, out to... Uh, you know, uh, yeah. his groin area. Yeah. Out to, and you guys were like, nobody, no woman wants that picture. Right? <laughs> was she in agreement with me? Oh, on yeah. That? I yeah. can't remember. She was like, we're not asking for that. Yeah. We're not asking for that I've picture. I've since heard from other people that that's not true. Like, I don't, I don't know that the, that is, you know, that some you people can say want, that across the board. Some people want that picture. Mm-hmm. I mean, these days with not online so, dating, but, maybe the attitude toward that has changed. But not unsolicited. Oh, yeah, not unsolicited. No. You could, there's got to be a, an ask. There, you, somebody <laughs> says, we'd like to see. It could be, I think it could be actually alarming and possibly a crime to send that. <laughs> <laughs> Without asking permission, yeah. you know, to Ooh, make sure the I, receiver actually wants it. I saw a story yesterday about something like this that happened on a plane. 
Okay. All right. It, Can't wait to see where this no, goes. No, no, this is this is interesting. Okay. So some dude who was on, on a plane, plane. Mm-hmm. sent airdropped a picture <gasps> oh, no. with a. Uh, I think I can say this because I'm not on a plane. Okay. He had a bomb threat. Oh. Kind of a, a okay. picture of a bomb. Oh. He airdropped it to everyone on the plane. What? So he was in seat 17F. No. Okay. I'm not, I'm not kidding you. He's in seat 17F. The plane is on the tarmac getting ready to go out in taxi and whatnot. He airdrops a photo to everybody who had their phones on on the plane, like to multiple people who had their phones on and airdrop was like, yeah. you can set your airdrop. You've got to set that to contacts yeah. only. But people who had it set to everyone, he airdropped everybody who had that setting Whoa. a photo of a bomb wow so of course somebody notified the flight attendants who notified the pilots <laughs> who turned the plane around and sent it back to the gate do you know they were able to find out who sent it they knew where he was sitting huh they knew his name that fast yes wow they knew like people were still buckled up the police got on the plane and said everybody put their hands on their head Oh. And they got on the thing and they said, so-and-so sitting in seat 17F, stand up. We know that you are the person who airdropped the uh, the picture. And uh, put your hands on your head. And they walked him off the plane. And I'm sure when he got off the plane, you know, they face-planted him and cuffed him. And I have to know more about that felony. story. Because was he just trying to be funny yes. and sending somebody like a... Like a gif of That's a bomb, he, like he, you know, as in was, you the bomb. He was just trying to scare everybody. Oh, he actually was trying yeah, to. I'm, scare I'm sure he was. Like they, there was no bomb on the plane, so right. it was an idle threat. But you can't make a threat. That's like the. That's like people. Anybody who goes through security knows. Yeah. No, TSA. you don't even say that word. You can't when even. You're in be, you can't even lane. turn to your wife no. and be like, "You're the bomb." Nope. 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 Yeah, banned words. You can't at an joke. You can't say. You shouldn't. <laughs> and the other thing you should do is you should follow the instructions and not be that person who gets your water bottle taken out of your bag. I'd be so Anna. mad if I was. I'm just gonna ignore that. Um, I'm gonna. I would be so mad if I were on that plane and I yeah. got delayed for that reason. Yeah. You know. I mean, I'd be glad. I guess that security was so on it. Don't you think that's better, though, that the plane hadn't taken off yet? Sure, yeah. Because yeah. I think there's something about, like, you know, I've seen a, cases where the plane's up in the air, mm-hmm. and they somebody's misbehaving, they have to turn that, ha- halfway to Hawaii, they have to turn the plane around. You haven't actually been on a plane no, where that No, I've said I've heard that. Yes. That there was a death on a plane one time, they turned the plane around, yeah. and uh, and people were not like, damn it, I wanted to go to Hawaii. No, they were like, no. somebody died. Yeah. But, but or somebody's misbehaving. Yeah. You know, I've never been on a plane, like, every time I go on social media, I see a video where some Karen or some Chad is getting thrown (laughs) off a plane. But I've never been on a plane in that setting. Well, maybe you're fortunate. Are you looking for that? I've been on a lot of planes. I'm always looking around going, oh, where is she? And she's not on my plane. Maybe it would have happened if you weren't there mitigating in some manner. I am kind of like like a U.S. Marshal up there. In these skies, you know, I am kind of policing things. Like, sit down. You know, I, I did have one time on a plane. Oh, boy. That this happened, this was years and years ago. Yeah. This is probably 20 years ago. Yeah. There was a guy who was sitting across from me on the plane. Okay, so you were in an aisle seat? Yep. 
Okay. He, it was a late night flight. Mm-hmm. It was kind of like dim in the cabin. Couldn't help but notice his mobile device lit lights up. Okay. okay. I look over. He's clearly watching <laughs> pornography. Oh, no. Okay. Oh, no. There is a kid sitting in front of me in the aisle. Which means all that kid has to do is look over. Yeah. So I did kind of get the attention of the flight attendant and just point. <laughs> and she walked up and looked down at what he was doing. He wasn't doing anything, doing anything. Yeah. He was watching. Uh-huh. And she was like, you can't do that. Yeah. You're yeah. not at home. Time and place, sir. Doing whatever you wow. think you're doing. That's a really strong urge. Like that's, you know, if you can't even go a flight. Without that, yeah, that's pretty strong. Well, I mean, did he think he was alone? He thought he was on a private plane or something. Must have. It's or maybe really he just weird. Didn't care. I don't know. That's, no, that it's really weird. Eh, because you have to go like you have to have a certain level of, oh, I'm alone on the plane and I don't care what anybody thinks about me, to do something like <laughs> don't that. Don't you think most people go through the world that way? No, I don't. <laughs> I am very aware of the people. Within about 20 feet of me. Yeah. At all times. I accidentally cut somebody off in the grocery store today because I was in a hurry. Yeah. And I felt so bad. I felt I would apologize profusely. Don't feel bad about that. I don't know. You're being very conscientious. I found something out. uh, You know, did you go to the store in the middle of the day? Mm Mm-hmm. Was it? I was there with you. Oh, it was today. Yeah, it was today. Oh. You were in the same store. All right. You know what I I noticed in the same store? <laughs> what? A lot of older people yeah. go shopping during like the mid morning to midday uh-huh. hours. Yeah. I was in there to grab something and get out. Mm-hmm. Forget about it. Every <laughs> aisle, there's a couple having a conversation about. You know, do we have enough Ovaltine in the house? <laughs> you know, like it's just in every aisle, every corner I turned. There was, it was the equivalent of being in a maze. You know what? That I could not get out Just of. Just wait a couple of years, John. That's oh, going to be us. I know. We'll have an extended conversation over whether there's any Ben Gay left but in the house. When, when you're of that age, you also don't have an awareness around you. And so I stood in one aisle going like, should I just wait for them to clear or go in another aisle? And then, uh, you know, you know how it goes. All right, we'll talk some sports next. You got the BFT statewide. Sports Illustrated columnist Pat Forty had a piece yesterday where he was sort of writing about the money in sports and what is better, money or success. And the the piece, I thought, comes from a good place. I want to know what you think about this, Anna. He points out that the ACC and the Pac-12 are unhappy Um, kind of about where they sit as it pertains to media rights dollars relative to the Big Ten and the SEC. Um, And there's been a lot of rumblings about those two conferences. And, you know, of course, all the people in the Big 12 footprint are rooting for the demise of the conference. Meanwhile, you've got North Carolina winning a national title in field hockey and in women's tennis. Virginia winning in women's swimming and men's tennis. Notre Dame winning in fencing and men's lacrosse. North Carolina State won the women's cross-country national title. Syracuse won in men's soccer. Uh, Wake Forest won in women's golf. Stanford won in gymnastics, rowing, and water polo. Cal won in men's water polo and men's swimming. UCLA won in women's soccer and men's volleyball. 
Utah won the national title in skiing. How about that? And USC won in beach volleyball. And and he's pointing out that there's more to college athletics than winning in college football. The ACC and the Pac-12 appear to be doing very well relative to the SEC, the Big 12, and the Big 10 when it comes to the Olympic sports. Are we talking about two different things? Is there college sports that are real true Olympic sports and college football and college basketball that are different? Because it feels like that's the conversation right now because if you just looked at all of the championships, Stanford won more national championships than anybody else. Mm-hmm. And yet people look at Stanford and go, oh, they don't have their act together because the football team didn't do very well. And, they, and they're, they're going to struggle with the portal. But I don't know. The question is, what is success, I guess? Um, I mean, I think it's very a very valid point because when you look at the numbers, for example, the number of kids, you know, college students that are participating in that spectrum of athletics at the collegiate level far outweighs the number that are doing, you know, college mm-hmm. football. So I understand that the interest is in college football. That's what gets all the talk and all the attention, and it's what we predominantly talk about here on the show. But I understand from the perspective of those athletes and their families, it's like, hey, you know, we're doing some amazing things. I think it's, a, it's, it's really been a struggle for a long time and probably even more so now because of the attention and the revenue that is generated by college football and its importance in that way. I'll bring up, here's an interesting point that Forty brought up. And by the way, Pat Forty's daughter was a swimmer at Stanford. So oh, okay. I do think he's got, he's got a different perspective. Because as a parent, I know I sat next to him when, or, when Utah played USC in the midseason game that was at Rice-Eccles Stadium. I sat next to Pat Forty in the press box. Mm-hmm. And I got a chance to talk to him. And I said to him, hey, you know what was really fun was reading because he wrote a column about watching his daughter compete in in swimming and go she went to the olympics you know yeah she she didn't like win a medal but she went to the olympics and he got to cover an olympics where his daughter was swimming and i said it was really fun to read about a dad who was watching his kid participate like it was a youth sports event and it was the olympics and i think he has a different perspective because of that he's you know he's a he's about it he's thinking a and viewing it as it's more than just college football. Let's not forget that because it's easy to forget that. Does it also come down to how the money is split up? Because, like, I know that at a school like Oregon, um, you know, the football generates the money and also supports a lot of the other athletics on campus. So... You know, is the money that is devoted to football and making football great, is that taking away potentially from the other athletes on campus and the type of training or the the level of coach that they might be able to bring in? No, it's a commitment that the the Olympic sports don't make money. Mm -hmm. So the SEC and the Big Ten have not dedicated resources to those sports Mm -hmm. because what's the point? Yeah. If they don't make money. Mm-hmm. Like, very few businesses would pour resources into an area that was not profitable. Yeah. But college athletics was not viewed as a business for a long time. It was, you know, it's college athletics. It's supposed to be this 
complimentary piece of your campus. And so what the Pac-12 did really well, while others were not doing well, is it won more national titles than any other conference. That's why they call themselves the Conference of Champions. Mm -hmm. And everybody makes fun of it because they go, oh, you don't matter in college football. But guess what? They win national titles in golf and in swimming and diving and skiing, and they they dominate. Mm -hmm. And in fact, 21 members of the U.S. women's national team in soccer went to college. Nine of them came from the Pac-12. Wow. The U.S. women's national team that everybody celebrates is this great example of success and world dominance in soccer, in the World Cup, and mm-hmm. in the Olympics, is comprised almost half of Pac-12 players. Nobody brings that up. Because why? Those sport, that sport did not generate revenue, and so a national title for a soccer program, you know, nobody's going, oh, let's throw a big parade and shut down the campus. No, people celebrate it but not in the way that college football is celebrated. So I think what the Pac-12 has done as well is it had its own network. So the Pac-12 network, who we all groan at and go, oh, it doesn't help, you know, ask the women's basketball coaches in the Pac-12 what the Pac-12 network has done for them. And they go out and recruit, and they tell the, the kids that they're recruiting and their families guess what? You're going to be on a network that is dedicated to showing women's college basketball. Nobody else can do that. Nobody else is doing that. So the Pac-12 is highlighting Olympic sports to platforms that nobody else is doing as well. But I wonder if that conversation is changing because society is changing. How we view the Olympics, I feel like, is changing. You know, the Olympics and the level of excitement that all of us, I feel like, had, let's say, back in the 90s, um, dun, it, dun, it's just, dun, dun. it's not quite there anymore. And I, I can't point to an exact reason why. Maybe it's all the politics involved. Maybe it's, you know, the doping scandals and things like that that yes. have taken away from the luster of some it. Some of that. But it's just not what it used to be. So there has to be some kind of trickle-down effect, don't you think, for us as a society going, well, how much do we really value these sports of course for the individual athletes they celebrate it and their families do but i don't know for the rest of us i think there's a saturation of sports Mm -hmm. that we're seeing on you know turn on the tv pickleball golf mma ufc Mm -hmm. you know uh x games yeah olympics come around it's not as special Mm. you know we're seeing some of this stuff that is happening year round and it the Olympics felt special when they were every four years or whatnot or yeah. every two years with the winter and summer staggered. So I think there's some of that going on, too. But I think it's a really interesting concept where he's saying, hey, it's not just about money. Let's not forget that college athletics, largely, the vast majority of athletes are not playing football. They're playing other sports. I think it's fascinating to have that viewpoint. The 5 at 5 is coming up. Anna's going to pepper me with the five biggest sports stories as she sees it. Does she get it right? Stick around. I am really looking forward to football. NFL football, college football. I do tend to uh, get more into football maybe than the other sports. Forgive me. College football, I still see beauty in it. The NFL still works for me. I'm excited that coming up here in the month of July... And into August, we are going to dominate the football conversation. It, We're not home of the Ducks. We're not home of the Beavers. We're home of the truth. And i got to be honest with you, I'm going to talk football, a lot of it. 
Pac-12 Media Day coming up in July. I will be there broadcasting live. Big Sky Media Day will be in Spokane. I will be there as well. Uh, we'll bring you to both places. You can feel like you're in Vegas and in Spokane at the same time. Uh, in on that note, Anna is ready. Are you ready? You have your five at five ready? Mm-hmm. I shouldn't speak for you. You have a microphone right in front of you. Yeah, no, I'm good. She's good to go. Judah, you ready? I'm ready. Let's do it. The five. The five at five. The number one story as Anna sees it is. Isaiah Rogers uh, with the Indianapolis Colts is one of several NFL players facing full season 2023 suspensions as part of the league's latest investigation into gambling allegations. This according to CBS Sports. So this was a year after Falcons and current Jaguars wide receiver Calvin Ridley was suspended for all of 2022. NFL's already suspended five additional players this offseason, including Jamison Williams with the Lions. Earlier this month, the NFL earlier this month the NFL said it was preparing for a second wave of suspensions with Rodgers included. Adam Schefter uh, reporting on that as well. Here's what Shefty said. There are going to be a handful of NFL players suspended by the end of this week, including the Colts cornerback Isaiah Rodgers, who's going to face a year-long suspension for his violations of the league's gambling policy. Now, there will be other players. I don't expect any big names in the bunch, but it sounds like there will be a few players who get season-long suspensions. I think there'll be another one that gets a multi-game suspension, but the league is taking a very strong stance and making it very clear that players are not allowed to bet on their own teams. They're not allowed to bet from their own training facilities. We've already seen players suspended this offseason, and we're going to see more before the week is through, multiple suspensions coming later this week. You know, it's interesting. They're not even allowed to enter a sports book during the season. Yeah. But that's I'm confused by this. We're seeing stadiums that are being built with sports books in them. I know. We're seeing NFL teams and leagues in business with fantasy sports and gamers. Sponsorships. As the players are playing the game, look up. You're going to see sponsorship signage yeah. inside the stadium. But they're telling the players, you can't bet on sports while you're at the facility. But you can walk across the street and wager just as long as you don't wager on your own team. No, they can't wager on anything. They can't place bets on any other sports from team facilities From the or facility. Hotels. But if they walk across the street, they can't. If, but if yeah. they're in a hotel as part of a road trip, they can't. So <laughs> so confusing. You know, it makes me think clear. of when we saw Trevor Lawrence yeah. uh, at the casino. He was like, at the casino. At, at a casino in Las Vegas. And I'm like, did he have to take a circuitous route around the sports Yeah, book? where does the sports book begin and end, Trevor? <laughs> he was at, uh, I think he was at uh, either Win or one of those. Yeah. He was walking through with yeah. his entourage. Yes. And he was right by the sports book. I know. Was he in the sports book? I don't know. <laughs> Keep your feet on this side of the carpet. Right. I think, th- like, because in Schefter's report, he says the league is making it clear. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure they are. Because I think there's a lot of gray area when it comes to this arrangement that the league has with the gambling partners. And Yeah. I just think they should just say, you're not allowed to wager. But, you know, you see MMA fighters, boxers who will say, 
I bet on myself. Yeah. They'll go they'll go and literally place a wager on themselves to win the fight. Mm-hmm. And that's okay. Can Phil Mickelson bet on himself to win the US Open? I'm sure that mm-hmm. the you know, the PGA Tour is not gonna have a problem with Phil anymore. Uh, <laughs> number two as you see it, Anna, go ahead. Uh, will the NBA on NBC be making a return for the first time since two thousand two? This is according to the Post. NBC is interested in making a run at NBA TV rights once again when the current media deals expire after the 2024-25 season. Um, It's interesting that they might try to do Sunday night basketball after Sunday night football. I don't know if it works. Speaking of saturation. I don't know if it works. Um, NBC is going to get competition from TNT, who's going to want to hang on to it. They're going to get competition from ESPN. And guess what? You're going to see Amazon and maybe Apple and others get in on this as well. I think you're going to see Amazon probably be a bigger threat to TNT. Maybe Apple. We'll see. But I think it's going to be interesting to see what happens with this TV deal for the NBA because um, a lot of people believe it will be a record deal. And that the NBA will, uh, the valuations of these teams will surge. Maybe that's what Jody Allen's waiting for. The number three story, as you see it, Anna. Simone Biles is set to return to competition for the first time since the Tokyo Olympics. She's announcing that she'll be back at the U.S. Classic outside Chicago in early August. That's her first event since Tokyo. She's taken most of the last two years off after battling the twisties. Oh, yeah. It's a gymnastics I, term. Oh, I have the twisties, too. I have them daily. <laughs> I don't need to be in midair. But that, mm-hmm. for those who don't know, that's an athlete having a mental block in midair, making it difficult to complete a move. You can't. Everybody knows the feeling of being in your own head a little bit yeah. with anything. Uh-huh. Don't overthink it. I got in my own head a little bit. We all say stuff like that, right? Yeah. Like, I've heard people, my friends will say, oh, I got in my head a little bit. Um you can't do that when you're doing the triple Lindy, okay, off the pommel horse or whatever Simone triple Biles Lindy? is doing, okay? Lindy? <laughs> you can't do that when you are airborne doing a quadruple whatever Simone Biles does, okay? Yeah. That's not the time to be in your head a little bit while you're up on the beam, you know? That's like a construction worker who's building, like, a skyscraper going, oh, I got the twisties up here. Uh-uh. Yeah. No, you shouldn't you be up there. That. You can't be up there, man. <laughs> I get the twisties on air, yeah. not midair. I'm on air. But do you can you relate to that as a broadcaster? Have oh. there ever been times when Yeah. You know when everything goes smooth. Yeah. And then there's other times when you're overthinking it and the show or the broadcast just it's it's something's wrong. You're in your head a little bit. Yeah, there's that, or when there's a really complicated name coming up that I'm going to try to pronounce correctly, Mm. and I'm so focused on saying that name correctly that I botch everything else in the sentence. There's that. It's not quite Simone Biles, though, on the the pommel horse. No one dies. No one is in danger of dying when I do something like that. I'm glad (laughs) she's uh, got rid of the twisties. I wonder if she talked to Steve Sachs about that. See how careful I was with his name? Steve mm-hmm. Sachs. Yeah. Do you remember what happened to him? No. He was playing second base for the Dodgers. Uh-huh. And somebody hit him a ground ball, and he made a throwing error. He has the shortest throw from, from <sighs> in, on the infield, right? Yeah. From second base to first base. Steve Sachs had the inability 
to throw the ball to first base. You've seen catchers who will get a problem throwing the ball back to the pitcher. 60 feet away, 58 feet away, whatever the pitcher's standing at. It happens. They get in their head. They need like a sports psychologist to come in and help them. Simone Biles apparently has figured it out. Good for her. Number three. 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 Boy, twisties. Uh, Travis Kelsey estimates that 50 to 80% of NFL players do what? A podcast. (laughs) Sentence. A podcast. Use cannabis. (laughs) (laughs) He uh, did an interview recently where he was recalling some more turbulent days. Oh, like in 2010 when he was suspended for a year while playing for Cincinnati in college because he failed a drug test after smoking pot. He was devastated. Um, he's saying now, now in the NFL rules have changed since 2021 players are tested during only a two week window at the start of training camp in the summer. He estimates that now 50 to 80% of players use cannabis. Hmm. That's really high. Get uh, it? It doesn't surprise me. We had Ricky Williams on this show. He's like, you know, the guy when it comes to that. And it, I, it doesn't surprise me because I think the players are using it to medicate injuries and how their bodies feel. And, you know, they're all beat up by the middle of the end of the season. I'm not surprised at all by 50 to 80 percent. In fact, I think that number is closer to 80 percent. Kelsey also went on to say in that same interview that he thinks the hardest thing he's ever done is do his podcast. <laughs> he says that coming up with new material once a week. Yeah. And I'm like, dude, I do five of those I do five three-hour shows. Yeah, but this is what you do. It's not what he does. Yeah, but he's saying it's the hardest thing he's ever done. Yeah. Well. Please. To do a one-hour once-a-week podcast? It's the hardest thing he's ever done? Really? <laughs> he needs to go pull over the next time he sees somebody holding a jackhammer mm-hmm. and be like, hey, you know the hardest thing I've ever done is talk for an hour a week. <laughs> See what happens. <laughs> next time he sees a crew that is... You know, re-roofing someplace yeah. on a ninety-degree day. But he has. He should done pull that. over his Land Rover, he roll down the window, and say, "Hey, you know the hardest thing <laughs> I've ever done is to talk for an hour a week." Maybe it is hard for Stick him. Stick to the marijuana talk, oh Travis my Kelsey. Gosh. Number four story as no, you see it. No, this is actually number five. You miscounted. Number five story as you see it. The hardest thing I've ever done is count to five. I know. See? On this show. See? Well, it's, it's two different jobs. <laughs> okay. okay. One of them is commenting on the stories. The other one is, like, being the ticket counter. You know, we I need, need a, We need, I need a, a clicker. Dry, <laughs> I need a clicker. <laughs> we need a dry erase. No, I just need a clicker. A like, clicker. Click, click, click. That, that's five. <laughs> like, the people who count the population at a concert. Yes. <laughs> clicker. Number five. Four fishermen set out off the coast of Moorhead, North Carolina. This is a joke. (laughs) Uh, They headed about 60 miles from the shoreline. They were on the lookout for swordfish. That's what they were hoping to catch. They dropped squid about 2,000 feet down, and they didn't realize they had a fish on the line. And what they brought up was not swordfish. They brought up... Uh, a really weird-looking fish. It's like prehistoric. Oh boy! What they caught was a big-scale pomfret, and the pomfret weighed in at 26 pounds 11 ounces. 
According to the North Carolina Division of Marine Fisheries, that beat the International Game Fish Association world record that wow. was set back in 2004. It's Is it prehistoric or almost prehistoric? It looks prehistoric. Can it be prehistoric if it's actually alive now? <laughs> I mean, you can look at something and go, oh, that thing looks like a dinosaur. Um, really cool. Another reason why I don't belong in the ocean. <laughs> When I see this fish, it does kind of look like it belongs in another time. And when you bring a fish up from that depth, uh, you got to kind of wonder, like, you know, what you, uh, I guess, I guess it's just a reminder. We belong up here. They belong down there. <laughs> Imagine the surprise of that fish. You know? Yeah, just swimming along. Swimming looking along. For oh, some there's something squid. to eat. Next thing you know, you're being held up as a trophy. 2,000 feet down. Yeah, that's too far. I don't want to know I'm in water that deep. Like, I am, like, sometimes, you know, we'll go out on the Willamette River, or we'll go, I'll go to a pier, and I'll drop a line, or fishing off a dock or something. I I take great comfort when my weight hits the bottom <laughs> relatively quickly. Yeah. Like, I feel like I'm in 50 feet of water, and it drops down, and it hits at, at about 50 feet. I feel good about it. Yeah, you're okay with that. I would. I don't think I could handle being on a boat in the ocean where I let out 2,000 feet of line. <laughs> you know? And it's just going and going. Does it depend on the size going? of the boat? What if it's a cruise ship? I don't know. Steve Fink is a former uh, sports information director at Oregon State. One of the best in the business. He mm -hmm. retired a few years ago. Yeah. He's a fisherman. Mm -hmm. He owns like a commercial fishing boat. Yeah. He goes out in the ocean. I said to him, what the hell is that like? Like at nighttime, when it's quiet, and he's like, oh, yeah, that's when, like, the ocean comes to life Ugh. at night. And I'm like, no way. No <laughs> way do I want to be out there. Not for you. Oh, not for me at all. That's the 5 at 5. Great stuff. Uh, uh, coming up, uh, we will uh, talk with John Wilner, Bay Area News Group superstar. He and I do a podcast, Gonzano and Wilner, the podcast. Uh, we'll talk about the Pac-12 media rights negotiations, among other things. I have some thoughts, too, on whether or not teams in this current era of the Pac-12 will be able to compete next season. There are five really good teams, Oregon, Oregon State, Utah, Washington, and USC, that will all be ranked at the beginning of the season. It, are they going to cannibalize each other? Keep in mind, they don't really play each other in crossover games until about week seven of the season. Pac-12 did that. Oregon State plays Utah in week five. Other than that... None of the other five that I mentioned play each other until week seven. So a little gamesmanship going on with the Pac-12 and lining up the schedule. But is it possible that one of them could make the playoff? And if they do make the playoff, can they win a game? Pac-12 only has one win in the four-team playoff era. Oregon beat Florida State in the Rose Bowl. That's the only Pac-12 team to win a playoff game in the era. Truck driver Ken has called in. So I'll talk about that coming up. But truck driver Ken wants to talk pre prehistoric fish. Go ahead, Ken. Come on, John. I mean, sturgeon, sharks, yeah, these things go back tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of years. They're out there. Hey. I don't I don't want to be in the water with them, though. Well, I mean, pretty much they don't want much to do with you unless you look like <laughs> you taste good. I, has somebody cleared that with the sturgeon and the shark? I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I just, well, I, yeah, you're right about the sturgeon. If anybody's ever seen a sturgeon, it it's a dinosaur. 
totally a dinosaur. Truck driver Ken, you doing all right? Oh, this was too long a day. Ain't Ten hours, chance. darn near a million pounds worth of rock that I moved today. And Travis Kelsey's saying that a podcast is the hardest thing that he's ever done. He needs to talk to truck driver he Ken. He needs to take a shift with you, doesn't he? <laughs> yeah, come on and ride along. Yeah, appreciate you, truck driver Ken. Lamarcus Aldridge, former uh, Blazer, one time he was at his locker and he was telling me how tired he was, saying, oh, my body's beat up, I'm so tired. And his mother was a bus driver. And I said, uh, tired like your mom? <laughs> Jeez. And, and he looked at me, he looked at me and said, different kind of tired. <laughs> <laughs> Full of empathy there well, for No, him, because huh? it's, he's staying in a five-star hotel, traveling around playing basketball. You're not tired like your mother who was driving a bus. Yeah, you know? True. Let's get some perspective, L.A. Come on now. <laughs> All right, coming up, John Wilner will spit some truth about the Pac-12. We're going to have a conversation about this media rights conundrum. If you want to know what's going on, what he thinks, what I think, stay tuned. We will lay it out for you. Further, I'm going to talk about whether or not the Pac-12 can actually compete in this era, this four-team invitational, and then when they expand to 12. Leave it here. you got the bald-faced truth statewide on the BFT Radio Network. Well, it was just about a year ago that UCLA and USC announced that they were leaving the Pac-12 conference. I can remember George Klyovkov, the Pac-12 commissioner, was driving. He was in the middle of Montana. He had no cell reception, and all of a sudden uh, he had to pull over. And, you know, the Pac-12 conference was, was losing the Los Angeles TV market, losing UCLA. You, losing USC, the tentpole universities in the conference. Um, John Wilner of the Bay Area News Group and I, uh, we are co-hosts of the Conzano and Wilner podcast, or Conzano and Wilner, the podcast, ha have been talking around this stuff for a full year and talking about this stuff for a full year. And it appears Pac-12 Conference is zeroing in on its media rights deal and should have something here in the next... 7 to 14 days, 7 to 12 days or so. Here to talk about it, John Wilner, Bay Area News Group superstar and the co-host of Konzano and Wilner, the podcast. Wilner, I want to start with this. The Big 12 Conference got $31.6 million per school in distribution. Where do you think the Pac-12 is going to end? What Around ballpark the number that you think the Pac-12 will get? You know, that's a good question. I, I thought that uh, before the Big 12's deal in October that the Pac-12 was going to get mid to high 30 millions per school per year and now with the Big 12 deal I think the Pac-12 will end up with very high 20s to low to mid 30s. I've thought all along that those two conferences are within 10% of each other. Uh, I've written that numerous times. If you do 10% below the Big 12 you're at like I don't know 29, 29 and a half and if you do 10% above the Big 12 you're at like 34, 35. I just think that's that's the range, and it'll be a mix uh, in terms of partners. I think I guess Apple and ESPN. I think that there's there's almost no chance, despite what's been reported, there's almost no chance that ESPN will not have Pac-12 football uh, in the next contract cycle. Uh, it just that is. Uh, I just think that's not. That's not reality. ESPN needs that Saturday night window. They're going to also want access to some some big games uh, during the day. So I'm going to say ESPN and Apple. I'm going to say within 10% of the Big 12. 
And then the interesting pieces, and I'll, I'll let you chime in here too, and we should talk about this. The interesting pieces also to me are what is the kickoff selection policy between 12 day, six day or something else? How many night games are there going to be? How many Thursday and Friday games are going to be? What is the impact of the contract going to be on the campus environment on Saturdays? Because I think that's a big deal to the presidents and their stakeholders. And I th- I'm guessing the conference is doing what it can to improve the campus environment, which obviously uh, kickoff time and selection windows are a huge part of that. Yeah, I, th- I think that's fascinating. That may be a motivating factor. We've heard some of the constituents um, over the years bellyaching about you know, kickoff times, especially like in places like Utah and Pullman late in the season where you get some weather. Um, and then the windows definitely hurt season ticket, you know, uh, attendance in some places. And yep. and it's an annoyance for people, too, not knowing when the games are going to kick off. And I think some of some of the initial motivation from inside that Pac-12 CEO group when they started the negotiations, I did hear some squawking about, hey, we're going to get better control of kickoff times. And, but I don't know if they ended up there. And in the end, the dollars probably matter more to them than anything. And it, it's a dollars and distribution thing. And I think that equation has not changed from the beginning. Uh, although what we've seen, I think, in the last year is a real normalization of streaming. ESPN Plus coming out and saying that they're going to end up all streaming with their ESPN content one day and could be two, three years from now. Uh, Apple gets the MLS deal and then really looks good doing it. Like the production quality of that is is fantastic. And and then uh, you get the NFL, not just with Amazon, but streaming a a playoff game and NBC Universal. And then you know YouTube comes in and gets the Sunday ticket. And so all of a sudden there's this movement towards streaming that happened while the Pac-12 was negotiating. So I think that may affect this deal because my sense is that. You know, as much as, you know, the Pac-12 wants to be forward thinking, I agree with you. I think ESPN is has got to be part of this deal. I think we've heard that from some different people who are in the room, that they uh, they value the, the glow of the ESPN shoulder programming and all that propaganda during the playoff ranking release, you know, weekly deal that ESPN does. And you don't get, you don't get that propaganda without being a partner of ESPN. That's the reality of of that world. And so I think, you know, I, and again, it could be as little as one game a week, Wilner, like just one game on ESPN a week, I think is enough if it's the right game and ESPN has the pick of the games. And so then you can get those, those programs that we all expect to be ranked early in the season, some exposure there. And I think that would be enough. Uh, I also think Apple's a likely player here. Like we've talked about this. I don't think it's going to surprise anybody if Apple ends up with the Pac-12 Networks content. And in addition to you know the football games, they get basketball games and they get some other sports. And then I'm going to go one further. Like I was repeatedly told throughout the process that Fox was still involved. And some other media members said, no, Fox is not involved. I went back and checked with the sources again. They said, no, Fox is actually talking about their Thursday and their Friday night windows. They they needed inventory there. So I think uh, my hunch is it's Apple. It's ESPN. It's a light sprinkling of Fox. If there is an Amazon presence, maybe it's in lieu of the Fox games. I don't know if Amazon would be interested with their Thursday night football games and taking on additional, you know, weekly games, or maybe they use it as a promotional tool. Uh, I don't know, but I think that's going to be the blend. 
the number I keep hearing is that the Pac-12 will beat the $31.6 million average, you know, distribution that the Big 12 Conference put out there. You know, uh, that, uh, you know, that number is actually lower than 31.6 in the Big 12's, uh, in the Big 12's uh, media deal. That includes this year, that, that 31.6. So it includes Texas and Oklahoma as part of the conference when you do the averaging, but it's really closer to 29 and change. But I still think, you know, I am being told, I keep asking, will you beat 31.6? Are you confident you're going to beat 31.6? People in the room continue to tell me that they feel good about that and that getting within range of that number is a layup. So, and that was, when I first started hearing that, Wilner, it was early March. So anybody who said they didn't see numbers, I'm highly skeptical Maybe they didn't see numbers on a contract. Maybe it's not official numbers, but they were getting numbers, weren't they? There's no way they weren't getting numbers by March, right? And there's no way the presidents are going to agree to uh, hammer out the language in a grant of rights deal if they are completely blind to what the deal is going to be. They got to run multi-billion dollar campuses. They're not going to be bothered to take some kind of flyer on a media deal that they haven't they haven't seen any any numbers on and and take the time to deal with the grant rights piece and so it's all set up and if the uh i think if the if the official offers come in with what the conference expects then they'll just sign the grant rights and and deal with expansion and 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 move forward what what about the Uh, you never know you never know though could right something could happen final maybe the final bids aren't what they something could happen to any of us but what about the length of the deal the big tens deal is up in 29 slash 30 the sec i think is 2031 the acc is 2036 when does the pac-12 want to go back to market oh i think they would want to go back to market in 29 wouldn't you I mean, I, that's I think that's been part of the plan all along. So they could do they could do a five year deal, uh, something like that, or they could do like an eight or nine year deal that's got to look in after five. Right? There's a lot of ways that you can, you know, uh, set up uh, option clauses in contracts. So, but I, I have to imagine they're not going to get caught in the same situation they were with the current contract, which was twelve years, no early outs. Uh, that's just not going to happen. And nobody's going to do that anymore. Nobody's going to sign a deal like the ACC did or like the Pac-12 signed, you know, 12 years ago. I also think that if you're the Pac-12, you're really going to be watching what happens with the expanded playoff. Because in the case of Oregon and Washington and maybe Utah as well, because Utah as a two-time conference champion has to, uh, you know, be interested in, hey, when we get to the playoff, we win this conference again. What, you know, what is that going to mean? What's that bottom line going to mean? I think um, getting to the playoff and what those distributions end up being, if they are uh, uneven, as you know has been reported, um, I think it's going to be a major incentive for teams maybe to stay in their respective conferences. That goes for the Big 12 as well, because why would you want to go and compete against Ohio State and Michigan and USC in the Big 10? And will that cause Oregon and Washington to go, you know what, we ended up far better off because... We can regularly access the playoff from where we are. Which do you think is more likely, Pac-10 or Pac-14? I mean, I assume you, you think that they're going to add SMU and San Diego State. But I just, I just, let's, say, yeah. let's say in a world that they don't just go to 12, what are they going to do? But here's the thing. I, I go back and forth on this because 
you and I would go to, if those are the two choices, you and I are probably going to 14. But the presidents and chancellors don't think like us. They're academics. They, uh, they are looking at, you know, the cultural fit of the campuses. They're looking at, you know, do they have a doctorate program? I'm going, hey, what do they bring to the table? Can they get to the playoff? Can they elevate your conference? You know, can they be Utah? Because Utah is such an outlier with, you know, among the schools that have realigned and, and joined other conferences, Utah's got two championships doing it. Like, that's a success story. Like, who can who can be the next Utah? So with that in mind, I I, I do believe they're going to go. They have to expand because they need the inventory and they need the TV markets to get the number they, they desire. So if they're going to really beat the Big 12's number, I think they need the additional two schools. They need that inventory in football and in basketball. And they need that the four million plus households that come with San Diego and Dallas Fort Worth. But so if you give me those scenarios, I'll say, okay, if I have to stay at ten or go to fourteen, I'll go to fourteen. I'll look at Tulane and Rice. I'll look at some others. Uh, but you know, I I don't want to stay at ten because I need the households and I need the inventory. But I don't know what the presidents and chancellors will do. They do not think like me. They would, I would not be welcome in their circle. You know, they would look at me and go, oh, you don't, you're not an academic. You don't think. So I don't know. I would say it's more likely they go to 10 than 14 in their eyes because there may be part of them that's going, pump the brakes. We don't need to expand. We'll take a little less money. We want to, we want to, uh, Hold on to the integrity of the original Pac-10 conference and and see what happens with UCLA in a few years. But I, I actually think they need the extra schools. And so if it's up to me, I go to yeah. 14, up to them, I don't know. I'd probably err on the side of 10. If they, if they thought like we did, they would have fired Larry Scott, you know, when they should have five years ago and taken a, that media offer from ESPN and they wouldn't be in this position. But uh, you're right. They think they think like academics. Yeah. Uh, hey, when I was diving into that Larry Scott stuff originally, like 2016, 2017, I was getting told, oh, there's nothing to see here. The presidents and chancellors were way asleep and they were way focused on their own budgets and their own campuses. And I get it. You know, they had holes in their budget on their own campus. They were dealing with Title IX. They were dealing with faculty and tenure. I get it. You know, they were getting revenue. They were happy they were getting any revenue at all. But I think outside in, anybody who was comparing them to the Big Ten or the SEC was going, hey, wait a minute, you're falling behind. You're falling further behind. Every year you're falling behind. Yep. And then the Big Ten did, you know, kind of ran circles around around their strategy by signing a media deal that expired one year before the Pac-12s did, which left open the door to, to go go after USC and UCLA. So... Uh, it, you know, a lot of th- a lot of things have been misplayed for a long time that kind of set the stage for this. But I, I agree with you. I don't know that they would go to 14. You know, they're too into the the brand of the West Coast, uh, the the geographic alignment, those those sort of things. But to me, the the overarching approach that they need to take with this media deal is not what is going to be best for the conference in year one and year two of this new deal. So basically the 24 and 25 football seasons, they need to structure a deal to have the Pac-12 well positioned at the end of the decade when this whole process starts all over again with media rights negotiations. What can they do to make sure Pac-12 is in the best negotiating position possible on July 1st of 2029 or on 2030 
right? And so they got to figure that you almost have to re-engineer it. Okay, what's our ideal situation? Then what do we do now to put us in that position, right? It's a great point. And it starts to me with investment in football. John Wilner, appreciate your time. Bay Area News Group superstar. Find him on Twitter at Wilner Hotline. And you can, of course, catch him on Kanzano and Wilner, the podcast. I want you to leave it here. I'm going to talk a little bit about who I think could compete next season and beyond for playoff wins. Not just making the playoff, but are there Pac-12 schools out there that won't just make the playoff when it expands, but actually compete? I'll talk about that coming up. Well, we're a day away from the Bald Face Truth Foundation Celebrity Golf Tournament. It'll be taking place tomorrow, and you will hear it right here on the station you're listening to. 3 p.m. to 6 p.m., Judah Newby and Stephen Vaughn will be on the call doing their best Jim Nance impersonation, interviewing the celebrity golfers and calling the scene from the Reserve Golf Course and Vineyards in Aloha. I want to thank uh, all the sponsors, uh, but especially High Caliber Millwrights. Brandon and the team at High Caliber uh, step up big. They have for years and support the BFT Foundation, and they just plain get it. They are supportive and they're into it, and uh, I can't tell you what it means to us to see lots of businesses that step up, and particularly High Caliber Millwrights, to support every year and make sure that we're able to hold Camp Exceptional, the summer camp for typical kids and special needs kids, and make sure that, uh, you know, frankly, kids who are interested in pursuing endeavors in art, music, education, and athletics have an opportunity to do that. Uh, Baldfacetruth.org if you're interested in the Baldface Truth Foundation. But thank you to High Caliber. Thank you to Rick and the team at the wall. I want to thank Steve and Jamba. Life is better blended. It's also better when kids can go to camp. Uh, I want to thank White Claw. I want to thank the Shoe Mill Shoe Stores. I want to thank Breakside Brewery, the official beer provider of the BFT Foundation Celebrity Golf Tournament. Uh, Sport Oregon has stepped up. They're partners in this as well, as well as uh, Grassroots Print House. And, of course, Bess and the team at Gresham Ford. Guess what they're doing tomorrow? On hole number 16, they are offering, uh, it's a 150-yard par 3. They are offering $25,000 for a hole-in-one. Twenty-five grand if one of the golfers entered in tomorrow's tournament hits a hole-in-one on number 16. So it'll be fun to follow that action, and you can follow along right here on this station. I also want to thank First Call Heating and Cooling, and I want to thank the team at Bricks. Uh, I want to thank Mark and the Urban Restaurant Group for their longtime support of the BFT Foundation. It'll be a lot of fun. I mentioned in the last segment, uh, as I was talking with John Wilner, um, you know, that I think investment in football and success in football is the great equalizer when it comes to the Pac-12 and other conferences. And regardless of what the Pac-12 gets in this media rights deal, um, you know, assuming that the conference is staying together, as I have reported uh, all this time, assuming that they get a number that's satisfactory to all the presidents and chancellors, they will then end on the dotted line and presumably go off into the next five to seven years uh, together. And... The great unknown in that is the college football playoff and the expansion of the college football playoff, right? We know what a four-team playoff looks like. It's not really a playoff. It's an invitational tournament involving four teams. Like, a playoff, in my mind, involves automatic qualifiers. You know, you win your division in the NFC. You win your division in the AFC. 
you you know you are a, a champion of your division in Major League Baseball. Automatic qualifiers. Then you have wild cards. So I have always felt in this four team playoff that you know while it may give us the team generally that we all think is the best team in America, like everybody kind of agrees, I think that Georgia's playing better football than anybody in the last two seasons. Like, I don't think it would have mattered if it was a 12-team or 16-team playoff. Georgia probably wins the damn thing anyway. But the problem I have is just with the format of it and the fact that it leaves some uncertainty, just like the BCS left uncertainty. Who was number one? Who was number two? It felt a little arbitrary, did it not, at the end? The expanded playoff is supposed to remove that, right? It's going to make more money for the schools. You're going to have the Power Five Conference champions in most years, they're going to get into the playoff. They're not going to be unseated by a group of five team. You're going to get at-large teams who are playing really well, maybe particularly towards the end of the season, that are going to make a case for being included in the playoff. And frankly, I think you can, when you have that kind of format, truly call it a playoff. I think one of the biggest shams, and many of you recognize this, one of the biggest shams of the last decade has been the CFP, including the word playoff, in their in their name, like their brand is CFP, College Football Playoff. Except it's not a playoff. It's there's a selection committee. It's an invitational tournament, right? The NCAA tournament is not a playoff. It's an invitational. Except conference champions, winners of the conference championship tournament, get automatic bids to the NCAA tournament. So there's a path there for everybody, and that makes it fun. And in the end, nobody is sitting around at the end of the NCAA tournament going. Well, I don't know if UConn was the best team. No, they earned it. They proved they were the best team. Maybe not the best team for the entire college basketball season, but they were the best team in the month of March and early April, and they deserve it, and they win it, and there's no question, and we get closure, and then we all move on. The four-team invitational does not give us that. So what will happen to the Pac-12 when it expands here, the playoff expands? Well, I'll tell you, the Pac-12 will get included in the playoff, for one. Only Oregon and Washington have made the playoff. Oregon did it in 2015. They got in, beat Florida State, they advanced to the national championship game, and Ohio State kind of kicked their teeth in at the end. Washington gets in, Alabama knocks them out immediately. That's it. That is the participation in the playoff that the Pac-12 has had in this era. It's not really participation at all. It, they have not been included. And I think it's really lopped off the entire Pacific time zone from participating in college football's postseason. It has just felt like it's the SEC, it's a couple Big Ten teams, it's Clemson here and there. And unless they're holding the game at Levi's Stadium in Santa Clara, like, you know, there's just there's no presence of the West Coast. And that, I think, has really hurt college football, the health of the game. So this expanded playoff is supposed to offer more inclusion, more geographical interest, more TV money, and some automatic qualifiers, and maybe even put to rest the whole idea that, you know, do we re- are we really getting the best team at the end of the rainbow? I think we, we are going to get the best team. But what can the Pac-12 do? And, and I touched on it in the last segment with Wilner, but what can these teams do to truly matter? And for me, it is all about investment. And let's just assume that the conference is bringing in SMU and San Diego State as members. Okay, so now you have this, again, 12-team conference. You get a true conference champion who's going to get in. Let's use last year as an example. Utah gets in. Probably USC gets in. Um, you know, Washington may have made it, been able to make a case for itself in a 12-team playoff. But you're going to have some. You're going to have some real inclusion from the Pac-12. Beyond that, though, 
there's a missing element here, and I do think it goes towards recruiting, transfer portal, NIL world, and it, and it uh, I, I think, becomes an interesting discussion in investment in football. Because as I pointed out in the last segment, if you're getting less money than SEC schools and Big Ten schools, the area to, to, to pass along the savings, so to speak, or the area to cut costs is not in your revenue-generating sports. It, you're not going to see cost-cutting in football, and you're not going to see cost-cutting in men's basketball. You're going to see cost-cutting in all those other sports that aren't generating their own revenue because there really is no financial incentive for the so-called Conference of Champions to go out and win a bunch of titles in water polo and golf and tennis and swimming and other, other sports that they have dominated in recent years. So I'm really interested to see whether SMU coming into the conference is going to have everybody going pedal to the metal. Combine that with Colorado and Coach Prime, at least in this next two to three cycle. Will we see a larger investment from the Pac-12 schools in football? And if so, will that parlay into success in the 12-team playoff? Because for me, that's the thing that the Pac-12 needs to do. We can talk all we want about creative TV deals and streaming and you know, could they set up ACC versus Pac-12 crossover matchups and all this stuff? But if the Pac-12 can truly matter in the playoff, all of a sudden, Oregon, Washington, Utah in particular, maybe even Colorado, they had a whole bunch of success. Let's just assume they have success. They're all going to be married to the Pac-12 going, hey, we have access to the playoff here. And not only that, we can matter in the playoff, not just get to the playoff, but win a game or two or challenge or threaten or contend in a playoff. To me, that's where the Pac-12 can make up the ground. And, and I fear that, you know, let's say the media deal gets some $32 million per year per school. It's going to be about half of what the Big Ten members get, maybe a little less than half of what the Big Ten members are going to get in their deal. Now, I would look at the Pac-12 and go, will Oregon and Washington spend significantly less than Michigan and Ohio State? Will Utah spend less than Georgia in football? Like, it, 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 you can get by spending a little less, but you better be in the ballpark or you're going to get run out of that expanded playoff. And if the Pac-12 can matter in the playoff and they can register on that scale of contention in the expanded playoff, I think it'll become very interesting and it'll become an interesting debate in 2029 and 2030 when the Big Ten media deal comes back up for renegotiation like does your conference affiliation matter or correlate to wins in football because right now let's go back in the last decade 10 12 years the sec members are getting about 10 million dollars a year more than the pac-12 the big 10 is going to get significantly more than that will that revenue gap affect football or will it affect other non-revenue generating sports more south carolina spent more than anybody in women's college basketball they almost got to the national title game and and could have easily easily won it. You know what? What was right behind? Who was right behind them? LSU, Angel Reese, Kim Mulkey. They spent about eight and a half million dollars. South Carolina spent nine million dollars on women's basketball. I think you're going to see some of the non-revenue generating sports in the SEC and the Big Ten take big leaps forward as more money comes into their conferences. But keep an eye on the budget for football at Ohio State. Football at Alabama, football at Georgia and LSU, football at Michigan. Do, do the Pac-12 members stay within view of those numbers? If they can, I think they will compete or they will contend. If they can't, they'll get left behind. And I don't know the answer to that. 
I because I'm not in control of those budgets. But if I am Oregon State, Washington State, Arizona, I'm spending to stay with some of those other schools. Because if you can do that and you can get into a playoff and find access to the playoff, all of a sudden you may have closed the gap a little bit on the haves and the have-nots. And if you can get that playoff revenue and your conference, like the Pac-12 you know, uh, says it's going to do, has unequal revenue sharing for the playoff, um, huge, huge, huge incentive to go spend, isn't there? All right, tomorrow, the BFT Foundation Celebrity Golf Tournament. It will be uh, taking place at the Reserve Golf Course. It's presented by High Caliber Bill Wrights. Tune in tomorrow, 3 o'clock to 6 p.m. You'll catch it live. The bald-faced truth, not here for a long time, just a good time.